Jim. That was your favorite song of 2013. It was well, it's my favorite album of 2013. It's hard oh, to nice. pick one song off of it, but that definitely I felt was the song to open this podcast. I agree. It would be a good song to open up every episode. It's, yeah. We'll catch yeah. a little tune. That was uh that was Chance the Rapper with good ass intro. Um mm-hmm. from his uh smash hit uh mixtape Acid Rap. Yeah. Uh, uh, my song will be at the very end, and it's slow and melancholy. That's right. That's, I mean, that's that's the difference between me and you. I'm 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 young still. I mean, I just I just turned 26, but I'm still young and I'm full of vigor. And you're you're decrepit. You're, I'm you're, old man James. You're old man James. You just like movies with feelings. And I love and going. Like, to, I love going to Great America. And I'm Six like flags. Oh God, do, do, no, do, do, not that old man. Do, do, do. No. No. Let's talk uh, about something good. What do you want to talk about that's good, Jim? Movies. Really? Do you think we had a good year for movies? Oh my last god. Last year? Yeah. I thought it was a damn good year. I yeah. mean, I know the summer blockbuster season wasn't anything to write home about, but I don't know. <laughs> Once we got towards the end, you're like, shit. There's a lot of good stuff coming out. Um, some of which I did not get to see yet, and I'm sorry. Wow, you're, you're jumping right into it. I'm sorry, America. Yeah, tell me, tell me the films. So, so this is the year-end episode of Directors Club. Welcome, the spooktacular. everybody. Spooktacular. It's the spooktacular 2013 spooktacular, which is recorded in January of 2014. So you know, fits um, during but, the craziest blizzards in 30 years. That's true. That's true. This is the first uh, end of year episode where we're not together. I can't look into your eyes, and you know, I imagine the you know, I mostly when when we're doing this podcast, I like to look into your eyes and I like to just think about the year in review as far as you know different fantasies I've had about you, Jim. Mm, that sounds good. Well, it can't happen now. I just wish I can have laser shoot out of my eyes. Yeah, I'm hoping for that. I mean, there's an app for it, so I'm in luck. There's an app for that. Mm-hmm. For I mean, lasers. Yeah. So it's you the future, kids. you know? I mean, uh, eventually I'm going to be having sex with my phone. Well, I, you didn't even get to see if you want to talk about your <laughs> list of shame. We're doing good. Um, 
I like commenting so much throughout. I needed to see a few movies that a lot of other people have seen. Uh, no, no, I'm sorry. We need to. We do need to double back. So this is the end of the year episode. We're going to be talking about the year interview. We're going to be talking about our favorite movies 2013. This is We're one of my talk about- favorite podcast episodes of the year. Oh, it's, it's always fun to do. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been preparing like crazy for the past couple months. Um, Cramming. Cramming. Like, like any good student, we – we did not do our homework throughout the year, and now at the end of the year, we crammed it all in. But we have all of 2013 film goodness in our heads. Um, we, we, we're we taking uh, calls and emails from you guys. And we're um, taking it to the streets. We're taking it to the streets. Um, you know, we're uh, take me home tonight. I don't want to – what is the next line of that song? I don't want to – Let me go, go till I, I see the light. See the light, yeah. See the light. Okay. I don't want to let you go till you see the light. Can you imagine meeting someone at a bar and <laughs> and them say <laughs> telling you that like, hey, let's go home, and you're like, all right, no, you seem kind of cool or whatever, and you go, I don't want to let you go until we see the light. That's hmm. intense. That's intense for someone that you just met. Yeah, that's uh, that's a little creepy. Who is that? Who wrote know. that song? Uh, Eddie Money, I want to say. I think all songs that I don't know from the 80s are Eddie Money. I think you're right. (laughs) So anyway, 2013, year in review. But before we can even talk about the uh, the, our favorite films of the year and all the all the wonderful things, we have to go ahead and admit all the films we didn't see. The ones you won't be hearing about. Frowny face. Indeed. Yeah, I needed to see the past. The wind rises. Her, inside Lewin Davis, drug war, at Berkeley, bastards. I declare war, and twenty feet from stardom. Sorry, I missed it's a those. Pr- <laughs> it's a, but it, to be fair, it's a pretty short list. Yeah, well, uh, you, like in most cases, you have something a little bit longer than I do. Oh, <laughs> so. oh, Jim, Jim, please, please, let's save it for after the recording. Okay. Um, but yeah, I have, uh, I have some, uh, films that I didn't get a chance to see this year, um, that have ended up on lists and even if they're films that I'm pretty sure wouldn't make my top 10, they're films that I wish I had seen. So here are the films you won't be hearing about from me this year. Magic, Magic, The Place Beyond the Pines, Museum Hours, The Hunt, Before Midnight, oh, Mud. Well, it, okay. To be fair, <laughs> I haven't seen any of the Sunset movies, Sunrise, mm-hmm. any of those. You've seen so, Sunset Boulevard, thankfully. But. I've seen Sunset Boulevard, okay. and I've seen Sunset Records, a documentary mm-hmm. about the uh, where Elvis recorded his first album. But, right. but I've never seen any any of those Richard Linklater movies. So I had a chance to see Before Midnight, but it didn't make any sense. I have to see all of those, and I'm sure I'll talk about them sometime in 2014. Because we're doing a Richard Linklater episode. Oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So uh, I did not see Before Midnight. I didn't see Mud, Prisoners, Lone Ranger. Again, not exactly something I think would be in my top ten, but something I was interested in seeing. This is Martin Bonner, uh, Bastards, uh, Short Term 12, American Hustle, 12 Years a Slave, Captain Phillips, To the Wonder, The Counselor, Dallas Buyers Club, Fruitville Station, Sound City. Oh, I oh. sorry. I didn't see Fruitvale Station either. You didn't see Fruitvale Station yeah, either? I missed that one. Yeah. Neither of us saw Fruitvale Station. Sorry. Uh, Sound City, The Wolverine, I Declare War, You're Next, Maniac, Don John, 
the bling ring, 20 feet from stardom, the past, drug war, or at Berkeley. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, we, we're, we're limited people. We're, we're, we're finite human beings. Um, that said, it is an amazing year for films, and the 40-plus uh, films that I did get to see this year, uh, I saw a lot of interesting stuff. Yeah, even for me, like a top 25 was like, oh, I gotta leave out that. You know, there's a wide array of really interesting movies that came out. Um, more the, uh, you know, the underground kind of stuff that you had to seek out maybe, but because uh, I don't really have like a lot of big blockbusters on my list. Uh, but I definitely have some that were like the most surprising Movies or movies that are really hard to define, <laughs> uh, or at least put into words, and that's kind of a bummer since we host a podcast where we should be able to do that. Yeah. But that's why I have my good friend Patrick to help me out. Mm-hmm. So um, we're going to get right to it. We got a lot to cover. Yeah. We have um, listener emails and voicemails. We're so grateful for those, as always, and we're really excited to hear some more lists courtesy of you guys out there. Yeah. So uh, should we get to some uh, ancillary awards before we even get to our list proper? Um, I don't know. Because don't we do it afterwards? We don't. We, no, oh, not I, afterwards. I always thought we did. Well, I guess it doesn't matter. I hope it's not, not like giving any, I guess it's not giving anything away if we say certain, like, oh, best director, right? Well... I don't know. Best director, I don't have one for because, uh, like best screenplay, uh, it's an award that's kind of weird to think about because, as someone who sits down in a theater and watches a movie, mm. you don't actually know who contributed what. Right. <laughs> so, saying someone had the best screenplay, it's hard to tell how much of that screenplay was, you know, on the page and how much of it was discovered and how much of it. And the same with director. It's hard for me. I mean, I. My instinct is just to go with whoever directed my favorite movie of the year, but I'm going to hold off <laughs> on that. Oh, and uh, real quick, I almost forgot. Uh, I guessed it on the Big Kahuna podcast, and um, or is it the Big Kahuna Burger podcast? I think it's the Burger is also yeah, in there. Yeah. Good old Thomas Wishloff, who just loves us. He's such a sweet guy. Uh he said that we're directly responsible for turning him into a, a film freak. And that alone is just really humbling and sweet to hear. And the fact that he's like, well, I got to put the podcast to bed. Uh, too much is going on in my life. And I understand, but I think he's going to come back at some point. He's really energetic and intelligent and he's got the passion, you know? Uh huh. So, he had me come on to talk about my top 50 favorite movies of all time, which being, you know, a fan of making lists and revising them every year, I had no qualms doing. And it was great because, um, oh, one more thing that we probably needed to include in our list, Patrick, was, I don't know if you thought of this already, but movies that we saw in 2013 for the first time that didn't necessarily come out in 2013 that we really loved, because that actually altered my top 50 as a result I, of some of our episodes. I I mean, you know, you can go back and listen to our episodes from 2013. I watched a lot of new, I mean, particularly, most recently, Vincent Minnelli, I, who I was only familiar with through his musicals. I, you know, fell in love with him as a dramatic act, uh, director. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's true. But that's I, true. I don't really have. I think a, that's a been list. on other pod or other end of year uh, episodes. But uh, yeah, I I'm excited. Let's just let's just get the ball rolling here, guys, because we got a lot <laughs> oh. to talk about. But um, okay. again, so, thanks, so Thomas, you, for having me on your podcast too. So you were asking me my favorite director, best director of the year. Do you have a best director of the year? Because I don't. I was uh, I was explaining why I don't have one. I'm kind of scared to give it away. I don't know if I should say it. Uh, if it's if it's going to be a quote unquote spoiler for your list, I think it is. I'm going to hold right. off. But no, hold uh, on. yeah, let's go down. Okay, hey Jim, what's the hardest you laughed this year? Oh, good question. I'm gonna, okay. I'm going to go with the uh, man. There's a lot to choose from in Wolf of Wall Street, but I'm going with the Quaaludes. Yeah, Popeye. Yep. Okay. Yeah. No. We we're we're in agreement. Q ding effect. That was the. That was definitely the. Wait. What did you just say? I gotta have a ding sound effect if we ever have a match. Oh, I thought I thought that was some kind of like psychology term like the cute the cuting effect the the pavlovian effect yeah, yeah the cute yeah like the cuting effect i'm um, holding a can of dog food over here oh man the know. wolf of wall street um we'll be talking about it i think that is More. a funny movie mm-hmm. um what else uh, can i go ahead and reveal to you so so a uh, little let me reveal to everybody how the sausage is made. Jim this year is the one. He came up with a whole bunch of different awards, uh, sort of ancillary awards that, you know, uh, you know, best newcomer, best ensemble, most underrated, most overrated, et cetera. Um, and honestly, I couldn't fill out most of them just because I was spending too much of my time uh, see, watching movies. Uh, but um, I, I can combine two of them. Which is sexiest shot slash moment, which was an award that Jim came up with, um, and biggest surprise. Hmm. Now, there were two. They were hmm. one and the same for me. Okay. Which was I watched All Is Lost. <laughs> and now you're in love with Robert Redford. All is okay. So All Is Lost is the film in which Robert Redford is the only character, and he is a. And and he is a man whose yacht has been wrecked by a uh, by a cargo a giant cargo crate that I guess fell out of the sky, um, or something. There's it's really not explained, and that's kind of the point of the movie. But so the film is it's basically the seaborne version of Gravity, in which it's just a series of tense moments and a guy trying to use all of his resources and his wits to not die. Um, stranded in a scary place. In gravity, it was space, and here it's the middle of the Indian Ocean. Um, and there was something about the way that Robert Redford just snaps into action. So, like, the film opens with him waking up, and the cabin of his yacht is flooding with water. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's something about the way he just snaps into action. There's very, very little dialogue at all. Um, obviously, it, it being only one person, and there are no other people for him to talk to. Um, and there's no uh, volleyball for him to talk to. Um, you know, there's, there's no real dialogue. So he just – so there's no real moment where he goes, oh, fuck. No, 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 no. Oh, shit. Or like he, he's freaking out. He just kind of snaps into action and just does what he has to do. Um, and, you know, so like obviously me being attracted to guys, not a revelation. But I'd never known that I was attracted to like uh, like kind of – 
gruff, scruffy, <laughs> jowly kind of older men who just got shit done. But in that movie, <laughs> in that movie, he just gets shit done that needs to get done. And he's very like he just sees a problem and he just fixes it. And he doesn't I mean, there's no one to complain to, but he doesn't complain about anything. He just it's, he's very stoic and it's it was very attractive. And I've honestly never been that attracted to Robert Redford ever. Like he's just never been my type, I guess. But somehow in 2013, a 77-year-old Robert Redford, I would and this is, you know, this is a big movie. It's a movie that ended up on a lot of people's different, you know, end of year lists and stuff. For me, the main takeaway with this movie was, oh, wow, 77-year-old Robert Redford's super, super hot. I find that really sexy. I, 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 I can go with you on that. Uh, right? Um, I, thought, I thought it was a sexy moment when he tried to seduce the shark. <laughs> I really did. You, that's, how, that's what you got out of that scene where he's yeah. fishing. And the shark eats his fish. That was him trying to seduce a shark. <laughs> hey, baby, check out all the fish I got. Oh, you know what? Oh, I no, I'm sorry, I was confusing it with Leviathan. Sorry. You know, I've, you know what? I forgot to add to my list of shame. Hmm. Speaking of sexy, blue is the warmest color. Didn't get a chance to see it. Holy crap! It's funny yeah. that you said that. Is that your sexiest moment? Mm-hmm. So sure. tell tell me about it because I haven't um, seen it. It's just a nine minute lesbian scene. That's very. I mean that. It's not even explicit. I think I think the uh, that's something to address too is the controversy that came out because apparently the director was kind of a an asshole to them and they weren't like making them very comfortable on set. You wouldn't know that <laughs> watching the scene and especially since their relationship is built really um strongly throughout and you you buy the fact that these two are falling in love. It's it's some of the best acting. I will say it goes on a bit long, and in terms of you know presenting uh, a love story that goes awry, uh, it's been done many times, which is why it didn't make my top twenty-five of the year. But in terms of just character interaction and passion, and just uh, you know, sort of that <laughs> over the moon feeling that you get when you meet somebody that you're crazy about, this movie captures that very well, and then sort of the downfall after the romance has died that i think it's a really good movie i just think it's a little too long but i recommend it for the perform performances and it's 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 pretty damn sexy and hey. uh, very very charming movie nine nine minute lesbian scene nothing nothing wrong with that Mm-mm. and I, um. I was always wondering what the warmest color was so i'm glad <laughs> that this out. movie answered it for me twist ending it's blue mm-hmm. the one that you least expected yeah that's the two raptors from the side that you didn't even know were there. True, true, true. Um, as far as most romantic moment, it's uh, it's hard to choose between two moments that felt so real in short term twelve. Uh, one of them is just pretty much them going to an anniversary party and. Who's that? Uh, go ahead, because I, I didn't see short term twelve. Go ahead, and give me a brief synopsis and well, set it up. It is. We're, I'll be talking about it much more later. Okay. As well. Okay. Um, and it, you know, just just this couple who both work um, at a facility for you know, it's, it's similar to a foster care ward, but it, you know, there's there's uh, kids there who are you know struggling with uh, mental illness, or they've just they're homeless. It's just a, a wide array of different people, uh, different 
adolescents and um, young adults who are just staying there to receive care uh, via a social worker. And there's a, a couple that works there together and, you know, they live together and you get to see their life at home. And it felt insanely realistic, uh, just like them making talk tacos and talking about their bicycle. Like watching that was like, oh, that's I know exactly what that's like. <laughs> but more or less, it just the way they play it, you would think that these two are actually together in real life, and that's great acting. Um, but there's also a moment involving an anniversary party where uh, the the guy that she's with. Um, gives a speech. I don't want to say anything more because it's one of the most moving moments in the movie. But it's 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 a romantic. It's not a romantic movie at all. But it just it just has these moments involving these two characters that just made my heart melt. So I so I'm for romantic. I'm torn between three movies. Um, number one, uh, uh, there's a documentary that came out in 2013 called Cutie and the Boxer. Did Which you get a chance? I, oh, I guess I didn't see that one. So that's on your list of shame. Mm. Um, Cutie and the Boxer, great movie. One of the most honest films about love I've ever seen. Um, which is to oh. say it's about an old – it's an old married artist couple and they have sort of uh, – or at least the the woman in the, in the couple has um, abandoned a lot and – and sacrifice a lot in order to be more supportive of her husband. Um, so there's sort of a history of there and there's a resentment. Um, hmm. But what makes the movie so apt about love, uh, you know, what makes the movie so telling about love is that they have been married so long that they've just let their guard down. You know what I mean? Like, well, you know, when you meet people who have just been together forever there's just well, there's they're never ever going to leave each other, and therefore they can say exactly what's on their mind at any given moment, um, mm-hmm. and not uh, and not risk and not feel, you know, scared of oh, I'm going to scare the other person away by saying that. Um, so there's this. It's not a, it's not exactly a romantic movie because their marriage is anything but perfect, but there is something really true there about about love and. So they say really hurtful things to each other, but they say them in the way that only people whose love has standed the test of time mm. can do. Um, so that was a really – that's one of my favorite movies of the year. And so that's the first one. The second one being um, – uh, oh, man. I just had it. Uh, where uh, – oh, her. Of course, her. So – you know, her is a you know is a film in which Joaquin Phoenix starts dating his operating system, but um, and you haven't seen it, so we're not going to really get a it's spoiler. Her is not in my top ten. Ooh, um, controversy. Eh, well, I it's a very good. Seems to be loving that movie. Oh yeah, it's a very good. It's a very good movie, but honestly, it feels a little bit similar to how I feel about um, uh, uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Um, which is to say it's a very elaborate metaphor, um, <laughs> which is to say it creates a whole – it's a sci-fi film basically. <laughs> um, but it really because, – because Scarlett Johansson, her character as the, as the operating system is so not robotic in any way, it almost feels like um, it just could have – it could have been the exact same movie – Without the same, without the sci-fi setting, um, if it was just about 
someone on the rebound meeting someone and then that person growing, you know, just growing apart from that from them. Mm-hmm. Um, that could have been the same movie if they, if if Scarlett Johansson was a human being, because I feel that really the only way the the metaphor like I thought it would be. When I saw when I you know when I sat down and I thought and I was watching her I thought okay so this is going to be a movie sort of about online dating about the way the technology distances us and all of that but it really doesn't at least I don't believe it really doesn't go into that it's mostly it, what it uses her as an artificial intelligence it uses that as a metaphor for the way that people grow in a relationship hmm. and and where you know if you're in a relationship with you know I uh, in 2013 and. I should say this. I, no one was more primed than me <laughs> to to like her. I mean, 2013 is when I ended a five-year relationship uh, and I started another one. Um, and it's – and it was – and it's – so 2013 was a very tumultuous time and all of these kinds of uh, feelings about the way people grow together and grow apart were very fresh to me. Um, but in her uh, – so her basically it uses the artificial intelligence as a metaphor for the way people evolve and they grow apart. And but because she's an artificial intelligence, she evolves exponentially faster um, mm. than any human being could, just because she can experience so much more at once. You know what I mean? That sort of thing. So it's it feels like this. The way I feel about Eternal Sunshine is it's a very elaborate metaphor, but what it accomplishes with that metaphor, you know, it's a very elaborate sort of world it builds with okay so here's a service where you can you know you have our memories erased and we're going through your memories and everything but what it actually does with that is little more than what annie hall you know it's less than what annie hall does you know and annie hall doesn't have to come up with a metaphor annie hall is just well it's a person remembering so this is what it's like um and it's and what it does is it makes it a very fun setting for a love story mm-hmm. uh so like there's – I love her. I love the world they built on her. I don't want to denigrate her at all because I think the romance in it is amazing. Like what makes the movie work is it's really well observed and both Scarlett Johansson and Joaquin Phoenix are really good in it. Um, but it almost feels like a wasted opportunity just because it doesn't uh, – it doesn't really explore a lot of the questions that it sort of raised in my head when I was watching it. Um. But as far as most romantic, like that uh, – the way that the chemistry that Joaquin Phoenix has with his phone because that's where <laughs> the operating system primarily lives is his phone um, is amazing. And so all that was great. And then uh, Upstream Color uh, – I mean we, I've talked about Upstream Color in my interpretation of it. But basically there's no better movie about uh, sort of bonding with someone over shared trauma and – dealing with trauma and learning to work through that trauma with another human being. Um, Shh, save that. Save yeah. I think it's a very romantic <laughs> sentiment. So I agree. Color. Yeah. Ooh, I took a long time. I'm sorry. I had to sort of set up her. I'm not going to be talking about her anymore. So I figured I should just get all I my can't. her out right there. I'm so, I can't. <laughs> no, it's opening up Friday over here. So I'll finally catch up with it soon. You enough. should see it. I, I think I will. We'll talk about it next episode. <laughs> oh boy. Um, Let's. I think we should just do like the quicker ones, like best actor and best actress and all that stuff. Sure. Uh, my choice for best actor is Mads Mikkelsen in The Hunt, which um, uh, I, did I make my top twenty-five? It's on the low end. It's at twenty-one. So um, I just think people should need, should see this movie instead of Prisoners. I think it's much more effective. It talks about 
um, domestic sort of issues and paranoia and uh, just like the community freaking out because uh, this particular um, kindergarten teacher is accused wrongfully, actually, of um, molesting one of his students and just how the town reacts. It's very similar to how they react to Frankenstein. And one moment in particular, which I think is, is also like uh, one of the most nail-biting moments, uh, which was one of our subcategories, it's his character going back into the grocery store after being harassed. And instead of like backing down and being passive, he confronts people about. And it's like one of the most insane, intense things I've seen in a movie in a long time. And The Hunt's an amazing movie, but the reason why I love it is mainly because of this lead performance by Mads Mikkelsen, who is currently playing Hannibal on the TV show Hannibal. I hear so many good things about that show. I should yeah. try to – hopefully it gets to Netflix or some, some service. Um, oh, I should go ahead and give a shout-out. I have a new roommate, um, Genevieve, and hmm. Genevieve hooked me up with uh, – hooked us both up with a much better internet. Uh, I, didn't, I, ne- I never really knew what service was actually any good. Um, and so if you have noticed that the quality of the audio has been better um, since the Vincent Minnelli episode, uh, you have Genevieve to thank for that. Cool. Um, Thanks. So, and also now I can watch Netflix movies and stuff. So that's yeah. all good. Um, my best actor, um, go real quick. My b- most nail biting moment is the entirety of gravity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a good choice, brother. Yeah. So uh, my best actor was Leonardo DiCaprio in Wolf of Wall Street. Um, that would be my number two. So mm. because – and this is – I'm honestly – I've never liked Leonardo DiCaprio all that much. I think he's a very handsome man who uh, is generally – he doesn't get lost in roles that much, I don't feel. And I've oh. never watched a Leonardo DiCaprio performance and just been like blown away by it. He's fine. I mean I liked him in Django Unchained a lot. But again, he's not the best part of that movie. Right. Um, I like him in Catch Me If You Can. Yeah, he's. I mean, he's fine. I mean, he's handsome and charming. But I just, for someone who is the biggest movie star of our time, I think he's sort of taken that title away from Will Smith. He doesn't. He's not really all that special to me. So, but Wolf of Wall Street is. I mean, between Django and Chain last year and Wolf of Wall Street this year, I really hope that he realizes that. <laughs> that his his sort of forte is to play just unlikable assholes, just like in the Great Gatsby. Yeah, I didn't see three, that three one. in a row for him. I mean, I didn't see that one, but I didn't. I I didn't think that was that. It was not on my list of shame because I didn't see it on purpose. It looked horrible. Eh. But um. But he's just he's so great an asshole, and it's such a physical performance. I mean, again, I don't. We can't. I don't want to spoil anything. But the Popeye scene in Wolf of Wall Street is just. Yeah. It's fucking comedic gold, and it's all physical, and it's all, it's all you know, it's it's all the sort of stuff that um, an actor like Leonardo DiCaprio never has to deal with generally. Right. Um. So I thought he was just amazing. And uh, who's your best actress? Amy Simons. Really? Yes. Tell me about why you lo- why Amy Simons is your best actress. Because a, a lot of her um, performance. In in upstream color, yes, <laughs> obviously it's not from your next, um, <laughs> but uh, I mean it's a lot of a lot of the performance as is the movie doesn't always rely on dialogue, um, and 
they're just her body language or her um, freakouts in particular really really hit home. Uh, they they reminded me of moments with people that felt very real. Um, I I just think there there's something about this performance in particular. It doesn't always call attention to itself. It just you know, there's a lot of subtlety, and I think that she is someone to watch for the future. Like I I haven't seen. I know she's a director. I know that um, you know she's been in other films prior to this. But um, get guess whose movie? Guess guess whose mo- next movie she's in? Hmm. Ty West. Oh boy, she's in a she's in a she's in Ty West's like next a, movie. It's like a little happy family going on there. A little <laughs> crossover going on. That whole yeah, that whole uh, sort of uh, Ty West sort of in Ty West never made a uh, mumblecore movie, but he's sort of part of that whole crew now. Yeah. I mean, I was going back and forth between her and Kate uh, Blanchett, but I think Kate Blanchett in Blue Jasmine is very showy, and that doesn't bother me. I think she's phenomenal, and if she does win Best Actress, I wouldn't complain. Um, it's Woody Allen wrote an amazing part for her. Did you see? I Blue? forgot to put Blue Jasmine. I did not oh, see Blue Jasmine. Oh, I'm sorry. You need to. Yeah, I'd say check your local torrent listing. All right, I don't. I don't <laughs> approve of torrenting. Um, Mm-mm. neither do I. I'm not endorsing it. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just uh, saying if you want to, you could. Thank you, Jim. Thank you. Mm-hmm. You know, my best actress of the year is who? It was not even a question. Greta Gerwig, Francis Ha. Hmm. I am honestly, I was, I'm not a huge Greta Gerwig fan. I'm not that I know her work all that much. I've, I haven't seen a ton of hmm. Mumblecore movies, but I thought she was just okay in Greenberg. She was fine, but she wasn't great in Greenberg, but Francis Ha, it's such a, um, I mean, it's such an amazing role because she's she able wrote it, she wrote it for herself. Well, certainly. I mean, that's, that certainly helps, but it's, uh, but there is a loving, <laughs> there is a, uh, there's a loving nature to the way she depicts a, someone in their twenties as a total fuck up. Um, and it could have been a lot more, uh, hateful. It could have been a lot more, uh, aggressively dismissive. I mean, it was a Noah Baumbach movie after all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, there's so much love for the. Uh, um, there's so much love for her character, for Frances, um, in that movie, and she's such a perfect. Like there is because uh, Francis is a character who just hides all of her emotion, you know, all of her torment behind. Ah, okay, whatever. Like she's just she has to try to pretend to be awkward and and not and like it doesn't phase her. But there's all kinds of class issues and all kinds of stuff that she deals with that movie. And it's really a brilliant performance. It's so real and it's so. It has so many layers to it. I loved Greta Gerwig and Frances Ha. was not a question. That makes me happy to hear. She'd be number four on my list. Uh, goes Amy, Kate, Brie Larson from Short Term 12, and then Greta Gerwig. Mm-hmm. Uh, my best supporting actor, Jared... I never thought I'd say this in a million years. Uh, Jared Leto in Dallas Buyers Club. Really? Yeah. Wait till you see this, Patrick. I mean, it's yeah. not a great movie, but it's worth seeing for the performances. Um, it's very similar to what uh, Stephen Dorff did in I Shot Andy Warhol, just basically, you know, created a very empathic character who uh, liked to dress in drag and, uh, you know, brings a lot to, um, you know, that that kind of persona that, like, 
there's a scene in a grocery store in particular where a guy, a, you know, a homophobic guy confronts him. And the way that that interaction is handled is really incredible. And, you know, obviously he does go down the road of addiction, but I think um, it's one of the biggest surprises for me because I'm not a Jared Leto fan at all. Like, yeah. even in something like Requiem for a Dream, I think he's fine. But um, it's definitely, uh, you know, him and McConaughey both together in that movie. is It's worth seeing it just for that alone. Well, McConaughey certainly has tried. Jared Leto, I, Jared <laughs> yeah. Leto is just associated with, oh, he's, he's that actor with beautiful eyes mm-hmm. who, is, who isn't Cillian Murphy. <laughs> and he happened to uh, make a really interesting documentary about his band that I hate. But uh, I thought the documentary was actually really interesting. What documentary was that? Uh, it was a Thirty Seconds to Mars documentary. I can't remember the name of it. Okay, that's but fine. It was it was surprisingly good. I just watched it just because I was hearing, an, oh, it's really interesting commentary about the state of the music industry and digital downloading and all this stuff. And it actually was. Um, I didn't really care about the making of their new record at all, but uh, just in, like the insight that documentary brought was kind of interesting. If you're a music freak. Interesting. So uh, my best supporting actor would be Miles Page in Computer Chess. Uh, Miles Page, of course, played the uh, incomparable uh, Papa George (laughs) in Computer Chess, which is one of my – maybe my favorite – one of my favorite characters of all time. He's (sighs) one of the oddest human beings I've ever seen on film. It's one of the oddest films I've ever seen. I I mean – uh, yeah, yeah, well, we'll talk about it. It is. It's no. Uh, it, it's it's no secret that I'm adore computer chess. But Papa George to me sums up everything that I think is really fascinating about computer chess. Where he's, uh, where he keeps unraveling these different layers to himself um, throughout the film. <laughs> Whether he's just walking around a hotel eating just eating ice out of the ice machine, or you you find out that his mom is this crazy fundamentalist Christian when he goes home and he's ransacking her house to look for her his secret stash of money to pay for drugs he stole like he's a fucking crazy crazy person and he just feels like i mean the strength of that movie a lot is the actors all feel like non-actors they just feel like people who Mm -hmm. just exist in that time um but he feels the most sort of (laughs) non-actory um Um, yeah Miles Page uh, as Papa George in Computer Chess, my favorite uh, supporting actor of the year. My best supporting actress is... <laughs> it's tough. American Hustle is a very showy movie. It's you know obviously influenced by Scorsese, like I mentioned. And um, everybody in that movie is pretty damn good. Uh, including... I'm not giving it away. But there's a particular surprise appearance by a comedian in this movie, too. Which I don't know if you've heard about yet, but Louis C.K. Oh yeah, you've, okay, you know, <laughs> isn't he? A, it's not a surprise. I mean, oh, he's I, one I of the bigger characters, right? I didn't know he was in it until I watched the movie. I'm like, oh, cool. But uh, it's not like it's not like Bill Murray and Zombieland. Right, it's not like no, Hidden no, Cambio. no. But uh, it's a tough call because I think Amy Adams and Jennifer Lawrence potentially give their best performances ever in this movie. Um, and they're, it's very showy. It's it's very soap opera, and it didn't like. I think again, I'm not a huge. I like subtlety. I like people who don't call attention to like, hey, I'm acting. But I think uh, much like Wolf of Wall Street, this movie entertained the hell out of me. It was funny. It was just kind of over the top, 
And I liked that they really brought some pathos to their characters and didn't necessarily like, oh, you know, I'm screaming and I'm mad and that's my performance. You can tell there's a lot of sadness to uh, why they are acting the way they are. And I, I was really impressed with both of them that it's actually hard for me to decide between the two of them. Uh, but yeah. So, so they both get it? I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to let them both have it. It's a tie. They have to share it. They have to, yeah. they have to split custody. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, yeah. Leave it. Leave it for the lower courts to decide <laughs> how the custody works out. I know people hate ties and lists and stuff, so I tried not to do that movie wise. There's like people who are like, "Don't be racist." A lot of people love tie. <laughs> <laughs> that was bad. That was worthy of Jim. Oh, I'm using myself in the. Third that was person. a Jim joke. Yeah. Okay. Uh, can I can I go ahead and uh, I know I know we just did the actors and everything. But can I do another one of your ancillary awards that you uh, sent me? Okay. Uh, you know what the most annoying trend of 2013 is? Hmm. Uh, so 2013 was, I think, for me at least, partially defined by an amazing year for documentaries. True. Um, so all of the documentaries that were just talking heads. This could be a nonfiction show on television. Bullshit. Um, really bummed me out. And these these were – a lot of these documentaries were critically acclaimed and I don't understand why. Um, specifically, uh, The Punk Singer uh, and uh, A Band Called Death were both films that were uh, acclaimed when they came out and they are really, really generic documentaries. Hmm. I haven't seen either of them but uh... – I will agree that I'm kind of done with Talking Head documentary. I'm, unless, it's a, I'm, unless it's a documentary about the Talking Heads, then well, yeah, I mean certainly. Yeah. But uh, I, I'm I'm just I'm just enacting a clause right now um, where I'm I'm not if if I am 20 minutes into a documentary and it just feels like it's another one of people being interviewed and summing up the past mm-hmm. and with no compelling reason to be a film, I'm going to turn it off. I'm giving every one of these films 20 minutes, and then I'm going to turn it off. I'm going to I'm going to agree with that. I'm gonna I'm I'm kind of getting tired of that as well. I mean, it depends on the material too. Like if it's at least interesting, like if it's about something I'm interested in, uh, I'm willing to give it a pass. But I don't know that that I can understand that, and even something like Sound City just suffers from. Oh, cool! Look at this musician talking about what it was like to make that record in the studio. And that's pretty much it. I mean, sure, they cut away to the studio itself and, like, old pictures of them in the studio. But in terms of cinematically, it doesn't bring anything new to the table. There were just so many amazing documentaries this year that played with form. Even documentaries that I wasn't really, you know, hot on uh, were that to to just to praise a movie that just brings nothing to the table cinematically. It just I can't do I. It's just it, it frustrates me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there was there, a vocateur, the Morton Downey Jr. story. That was that was another bad documentary. Rewind this. That was another dumb documentary. I can't deal with it. Yeah, I kind of want to see the Big Star documentary because I was that's they were like the birth of power pop, and I'm kind of interested in that. Story. But if it's if it's anything like a band called Death, it's just going to be a glorified like a glorified behind behind the music episode. I agree. Um, Let's move merrily along to best score. Sure. Because I think we have a match, probably. Uh, is it upstream color for you? Yes! Yeah. High five. 
I, I mean, I don't. I, there wasn't a lot of competition. I don't. In in 2013, um, I know film, Ar- film Arc- scores are mostly unwelcome, as far as I'm concerned. Arcade Fire did the score for her, right? Not bad. That was whatever. Did they do the score? For, did they do yeah. the score for her? Yeah. Man, the music in her felt so generic. <sighs> one one thing about her that bummed me out was it made me think that maybe Spike Jones has really boring taste in music because whenever. A character's like, this is a really important song to me or whatever. And they put it on. It just sounded like the most bland indie folk rock that you've ever heard in your life. Oh, no. Like, I mean, again, this is all my opinion. I'm, I mostly don't listen to white people music <laughs> these days. So, like, just any indie rock is probably going to get a negative reaction from me. But, like, it's, it, it, just, it, it just cracked me up that it was like, it's fucking Spike Jones. And you, you know that Sebado is indie rock. No, I, I there there are obviously exceptions. <laughs> I know, I'm just playing, just playing, player. I I I like and I I even Sebado. I I mostly like the the more stripped down it is. Yeah, and the less the less indie rock it sounds, and the more lo-fi it sounds. But at, at any rate, mm-hmm. her there's like there's a moment where um, I and <laughs> okay, so here's another funny thing about her, which is I don't have a smartphone. I still don't have a smartphone. It's 2014. I don't have a smartphone. Um, so there were moments where before he gets the operating system that's played by Scarlett Johansson, there's moments where he's talking to his phone and it starts and it does stuff. And I didn't know if that was imagined technology or real technology because oh. he he like at one point he goes put on melancholy playlist. That's probably I'm assuming Siri can do that. Right, I I but I couldn't tell for sure, and so like mel, so the melancholy playlist is you know is what I'm saying. It's all the boring music, or whatever. And then he he goes, no, not that one. Next one, and then they'll skip. But like, so there's a level of voice recognition. I'm sure that is that it's more advanced than what's currently. But I couldn't tell because I don't have a smartphone. I don't have I don't have access. I don't have experience with smartphones. Ugh. If only they played Chance the Rapper in this movie, it'd be your number one. Oh no! Yeah, for sure. I mostly respond to movies based on them playing music I like. I like the use of the ELO song in American Hustle. The name escapes me right now, but it's used like three times. It actually sounds a lot like a Cheap Trick song. I I wonder if Cheap Trick tried to rip that uh, chord structure off. But when I heard, it, I was like, "Oh, is that a Cheap Trick song? No, it's an ELO song." And I forgot which one it is. I don't it's, have a. It's an American I don't have Hustle. A, I don't have a favorite use of a song. Of mm-hmm. 2013, but I do like that in I do like Martin Scorsese's dedication yeah. to pop punk. I know <laughs> they're but, like, but Everlong that was the, weird. Oh, so, <laughs> Everlong in a Scorsese movie uh, that made sense to me. It's 90s. It's period yeah. appropriate. Uh huh. Okay. Um, okay. but it's but it mostly it like there was like three pop punk covers of different songs in Wolf of Wall Street, and they all mm-hmm. cracked me up because they felt like a really funny. They felt like Martin Scorsese, like uh, like giving the bird to the Wall Street bankers, which is to say, yeah. and stockbrokers, which is like, you think you're hardcore, you think you're gangsters or whatever, because I mean, it's, the film is shot as if it was Casino or uh, Goodfellas and all that. But but the but the fact that it's like pop punk covers of like Mrs. Robinson and stuff is just like undercutting just how uh, inauthentic <laughs> they are compared to. The musical cues of Casino and uh, Goodfellas. So I, I that was my favorite uses of songs in a movie is that is that uh, Martin Scorsese uh, 
did a double slam. He both slammed the people on Wall Street, and he also slammed pop punk as a genre. Mm. <laughs> uh, I like. We the... never got to our best supporting. I never got to say my best supporting actress. Oh, that was your fault because you wanted to jump around, jump, jump, jump up, can get down. Did I? Yeah. I can't recall. You, you, yeah, you said let's move on to something else. I was like, oh well, uh, well, my best supporting actress is America Ferrera, and it's a disaster. But it's not a it's not a great <laughs> performance. It's honestly just the fact that <laughs> I actually like that that, that choice. That's really there's good. just there's honestly just not a lot of great supporting actress roles uh, in films. But yeah. uh, when she's on an, she's on the kitchen sitting in the kitchen oh. floor making her own version of ecstasy, hilarious uh, because the world is ending and she wants to be fucking high as shit when it ends. Pretty great, pretty great. She's good all around. Um, but. Um, yeah, no. Uh, I, I we should say we're continuing the uh, year end tradition where we're drinking um, during this podcast. And also, I don't know if listeners are aware that we both have ADD. Maybe that's <laughs> why uh, we're jumping around so much. Maybe. Um. um so yeah, I, I'm uh, I, I'm drinking vodka cranberries right now. I'm getting I'm, I'm getting there. I, I will have to take like a quick five minute break soon enough to get out the whisker. Yeah, yeah, you got some whiskey, and I, and anyone who knows me, they're going to be worried because uh, whenever worried. I get into hard liquor, uh, it never ends well. But uh, I just want to say that there's a sweet spot, you know, two two vodka cranberries, you get a little sleepy. Four vodka cranberries, you're incoherent. But three vodka cranberries, I believe with three vodka cranberries, you a man can fly. could a man could program uh, a man could podcast himself out of any problem in the mm. world. Well, yeah. I can, I believe you can fly. With three oh, thank you, yeah. thank you, R. Kelly, for step for stepping on my <laughs> computer chess reference. Oh, I'm sorry. You know what the biggest surprise? Because you're gonna like flip your lid. Maybe. I didn't hate a Rob Zombie movie. Hey, that is a big surprise. You didn't hate Lords of Salem? No, it's very flawed. Oh, certainly, <laughs> certainly. <laughs> I kind of liked it as this like blasphemous acid trip. Yeah, yeah. I so if you want to talk about like what defines Rob Zombie as a filmmaker, it's that he's always super fucking aggressive, whatever he does. Um, but not and everybody love, is acting shrill and obnoxious the entire time. Well, no, no, time. yeah, no. It's it's uh, it, it 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 suits him better uh, a little bit. There are moments where actors are called upon to actually act. But his script kind of fails them, mm-hmm, and it's mm-hmm. and I kind of wish that everyone was more shrill, just because it's kind of embarrassing. Sure, um, but uh, but I love how aggressively blasphemous Lord oh, is. Yeah, and I it also is, what really helped for me is to picture uh, Maria Bamford as playing Sherry Moon Zombie, <laughs> so that way I can enjoy it a little bit more. <laughs> um. You know, I'm not going to come around entirely on the guy. No, I don't. I would not expect you to. But I was like, oh, this is actually visually kind of cool. I mean, yeah. he does his occasional natural born killers kind of cut away to something crazy. And that, you know, and even something like House of a Thousand Corpses that wore out its welcome after a while. But, uh,. I I, I kind of dug it. it. It's a little bit more mature for him. Um, <laughs> I, I say that lightly, but I yeah, still think yeah. I 
I was just surprised. Like, maybe I was just like, okay, I've heard horrible things, but it's had some defenders, and I I just decided, you know what? Before we record this, I'm going to have to watch it. And uh, I I didn't hate it. I mean, it's not going to be on my list or anything, but I I was pleasantly surprised by at least um, him not being, and even his wife not being as obnoxious as she usually is. I mean, it gets crazy. The witches get crazy. There's, you know, a lot of insane things that happen towards the end. But it felt like Ken Russell. Like a Ken Russell, almost at times Lynchian movie. So Well, that's that's the name that he dropped when he oh, was okay. you know, doing press that, for this movie. That, so. that makes sense. Okay. So he, he'd be happy to hear you say that. I, I do think there is an L. I still think Devil's Rejects is his best movie because there is an element where he's overreaching, where... This is a film that needed someone who's a little more uh, who's, a little, <laughs> who's a little more disciplined, uh, and it's a it's a movie that needs someone who's a little more uh, just a better filmmaker because there's a lot of moments that just don't that you know that it's he's not a good enough filmmaker to make them sort of these ineffable kind of nightmare scenes yeah um, that they should be. On the other hand, I don't know any other filmmaker in history who would do the weird thing that he did where there's weird, like, flash animated photoshopping mm-hmm. of faces yeah. during that final moment. It was one of the weirdest fucking things I've ever seen. i never seen animation so bad in anything other than, like, a YouTube video. <sighs> and it was – and it's fat – but, it, but it, like, I think it did its job. It's fascinating to watch. Yeah. I, I thought it was. I mean, you know, even some moments like just the introduction of the DJs at the beginning made me laugh. Uh, I don't know. I was, it wasn't great. It was just better than expected, you know? So, I have a, I have a cut. So I saw, oh, I should mention real quick. Um, most apt movie title. Here's my award. Movie 43. Because I saw 43 movies this year and <gasps> it was the worst, it was the worst one. <laughs> so it but, was literally 43rd on my list of films of 2013. But you did not see a glimpse inside the mind of Charles Swan the Third. Is that would that be your worst movie of the year? Oh. Yeah, and I also didn't like the Evil Dead and Carrie remakes. I thought they were worthless. Yeah. Um, but that Charles Swan the Third was just like uh, a guy who wanted to be Wes Anderson had no idea how to. It was just quirky and bizarre. With no context, with no humanity, it was just like, let's see how weird I can be, and it was obnoxiously weird. Uh, it's everything that uh, Wes Anderson does right. It was like the antithesis in that yeah. movie. It was just like it was nauseating to watch after a while. And even guys like Bill Murray and Jason Schwartzman are in it. And I'm kind of like, no, I know he's a Coppola, but he's not good. I'm what, sorry. What? Which Wes Anderson movie did he co-write? I think Darjeeling. Dar- so he, he co-wrote the worst yeah. <laughs> Wes Anderson movie. Yeah. I don't, I'm just not a fan of this guy as a director at all. Yeah. Well, it, it, it certainly – your description of it certainly matches what it looked like in my head. But it mm-hmm. is always fun to um, see movies like that and to realize people who can seem just like a bundle of quirks like Wes Anderson – can just especially when you like watch his trailer. Like I watched the trailer for Grand Budapest Hotel. Can't wait. It looks fun, but it also looks like this is the most Wes Anderson oh, like yeah. 
anyone who dismisses Wes Anderson, like this is everything that it looks like to them. <laughs> yeah. So it is, it's nice to see people do it wrong to help you realize all the things that Wes Anderson gets right. Exactly. Um, so, uh, but I, I have a, uh, so in my list, there's a, there's a division between movies I would recommend and movies I wouldn't um, recommend. So just movies in general, I consider as good. Um, and I, out of my 43 movies that I saw this year, uh, number 28 was The Conjuring, which is a, a James Wan horror film that was pretty good. It had some really, really effective moments, even if it kind of fell apart at the end. I agree. Um, so that was the last movie that I recommend. And then there's a gap. And then number 29 was Lords of Salem. So it just missed the cutoff. Oh, <laughs> but, um, yeah. Um, the best action sequence probably when Simon Pegg is trying to drink his beer while battling all the uh, robot creatures. I just thought that was fun. Can can we include uh, gravity? Would gravity count? Um, yeah. Well, I mean, the opening of gravity is pretty phenomenal, and then once, well, shit, it's <laughs> like the whole movie. Um, right. Uh, most nail biting moment is the whole movie of gravity. Yeah. Well, that, yeah, for sure. But and, I think, like, in terms of action sequence, I just, I, I was, I enjoyed the hell out of The World's End, and, uh, I mean, Edgar Wright, what can you say? Like, after Hot Fuzz and even Scott Pilgrim, I think he's actually really good with the action scenes. Honest, so, World's End's one of my favorite movies of the year. We'll talk about it more oh, later. Oh, yeah, Spoilers. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I honestly found the action scenes to be a little too slick for me. Okay. They didn't. Uh, I think some of the camera movement, it felt too, like, pre-vised, maybe. Like, it just felt too, mm. like, too precise to the point where it didn't feel natural. Like, it didn't feel like a human being behind the camera. Um, so, and where it's just, you know, like, where, especially, I think it was towards the end. I can't remember exactly what acting sequence are which. Oh, also, I should apologize. Um, the heat is on. Yeah. We are, we're going through uh, an Arctic Armageddon uh, in the Midwest. So, uh, there's no way I'm turning off my heat for the, for the podcast. So you're just going to have to deal with the heat turning on every once in a while. I've had the microphone pointed away. So hopefully it's not too loud. If it does turn into the day after tomorrow, I will walk through snow, uh, to, to get to you, Patrick. I promise I will walk 200 miles or however long it is to get to you. I, I would walk 500 miles. Oh, and I would walk 500 more. Oh, baby, <laughs> baby. I love you. Um, but no, no, yeah, it felt a little too slick for me. I honestly, I like the action in, no, I don't think the action in Hot Fuzz, which is my favorite Edgar Wright movie, I don't even think that is particularly great. Um, I honestly didn't see just many great action movies this year, so I don't have a favorite action sequence. Well, that could lead to my, Patrick, you're kind of crazy. I mean, sure. I'm not as passionately about like the other ones, because I actually kind of liked um, Two Guns. But I yeah. didn't think it was, like, anything special. I just thought, eh, that was fine for what it was. I, You know, it's probably, like, a C plus, B minus for me. But it sounded like Patrick was like, oh, man, A, a minus for me. I was kind of surprised of your love. I mean, good good chemistry between leads and stuff. And I, I understand what you're saying with the the government uh, being corrupt. Um angle to the to the, to the storyline and stuff and bill paxton it's kind of nice to see him play a bad guy again uh but i, I 
when it was all said and done, I was just like, well, that was, you know, it wasn't a waste of my time, but certainly nothing that stood out. So I was just surprised about your enthusiasm for that one. Well, I mean, it's all the things you listed. It's, I really do think the script is just a cut above. Like, I just think it has a really great screenplay and the dialogue's great. And it, it's really funny. Um, and also, I, I mean, part of my love of Two Guns is just that um, it's nice to see Denzel Washington in a real movie. Yeah. yeah. Like, like, you know, you know, rest in peace, Tony Scott. But like, it's nice that Denzel Washington is in an action movie where he can totally Denzel Washington around. And he's just he, he was is good just in that train movie. Uh, unstoppable. Was Tony Scott. It? Tony Scott directed that. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. He That's was good. Another, he was good in that. Uh, it's, but it's it's I I liked him I like him better in a movie that I can where the editing doesn't make me nauseous. <laughs> like it's, okay. if it's a movie okay. I can actually enjoy, well, that's going to be a plus. And this is a movie I enjoy. I love the script. I love how irreverent it is. I love how it just the concept of all the twists, the plot twists and everything are just, they get to the point where it's so ridiculous that it, that's the joke. Um, it just felt like a really great Elmore Leonard, uh, novel. That's a hundred percent how I felt while I was watching it. I'm like, Holy shit. This is the best Elmore Leonard movie that Elmore Leonard never had anything to do with. Mm. Uh, there's, some, there's some good dialogue. I'm not going to deny that, but I just, uh, it's a movie I've seen a bunch of times before. I mean, it wasn't bad. I just thought, eh. What what other what movies have you seen that does two guns as good as two guns? Uh, well, I'm trying to think of like Elmore Leonard esque kind of movies that have come out recently. I mean, I genuinely I like Two Guns more than Out of Sight. I, I think the podcast is over. Yeah, maybe. I like Out of Sight a lot, but I. But I know I just I think I thought Two Guns was super funny. I thought Mark Wahlberg's at his very peak. Um, no, no, no. I, I mean, it's just okay. every every part of it worked for me. Well, that's good. Um, I'm going to do these really quick. Most underrated, most overrated. Sure. Most un- underrated, the counselor. Yeah. And most overrated, the spectacular drunk. I mean, I mean the uh, spectacular now. Which, uh, okay, it's a coming-age movie about a guy who likes to drink, and uh, he finds a really nice girl, and tries to get better, and blah, 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 blah. I don't know. I'm, I'm baffled. I mean, that's, that's a movie that, like, as I'm watching it, I've seen this a million times. Okay, the acting is kind of a step above, uh, but I had, like, no emotional response, even when he was, like, trying to reunite with his father. I was just kind of like, I think this guy's a douche, and I don't really care about anything that's going on. And this director made kind of a similar movie called Smashed, uh, about just, like, impulsive drunks. And really, that's all this kid is, is kind of an impulsive drunk with daddy issues. And it was not compelling at all. So, very overrated movie. Well, my uh, number one underrated movie I'll be talking about a little later, but basically everyone who dismissed Room 237 because they're like, well, all those theories are dumb, like completely missed the point. Uh, uh, Yeah, listen to our Room 237 Upstream Color episode for more. That was a good episode. Yeah, Room 237 is an amazing 
amazing film as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I don't know. I don't like to call a movie. I don't know. Overrated is you can feel like I can feel a movie is overrated, but I feel like it, declaring a movie is overrated can gives uh, a legitimacy to those feelings that I shouldn't <laughs> that I shouldn't uh, yeah. give because because sometimes just things don't hit you the way they hit everyone else. And but if but if you're in the minority, that probably means that you're just missing something, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, like, for example, I don't like the movie Vertigo very much. That's probably on me. I, I doubt that the critical community at large thinks that the best movie of all time is a movie that isn't very good. I bet it's just on me somehow, you know, yeah, there's something about Vertigo that hit me. So I don't. So with all of with all that with all those caveats, uh, most overrated movie for me was Nebraska. Oh, I mean, and I'm. I, well, are we going to talk about that later? Yes. Okay, so we'll talk about that later. And I don't. Nebraska. Uh, I was sort of. I sort of enjoyed it as I watched it, and then the more I thought about it, the less I liked it, and it just kept sinking in my mind, and I kept having to put it lower and lower on my list. Um. And it was just, yeah, there's just uh, a general shabbiness to it, I felt, uh, as far, especially in the screenplay. I thought the screenplay was especially bad, but also I thought a lot of the non-actors were pretty bad. Um, but, I mean, we'll talk about it later, and I don't want to, and again, uh, I'm not trying to say that I'm right and everyone else is wrong, but whatever everyone else saw in Nebraska, I, didn't, I did not see. So we'll talk about Nebraska a little bit later. Yeah, let's, let's quickly get through the rest. Uh, moment that made you cry the hardest? Um, for me, it was one. ending ending of uh, upstream cult. You know, that's actually what I have on here. But I was also thinking, God, I cried a lot during short term twelve. Oh, uh, but I'm going with the ending of upstream color. Also, the entirety of uh, Cutie and the Boxer. Whoa! Well, I better watch that shit. Yeah. Okay. Um. Best line of dialogue. I'm not gonna. I don't know. Okay. Here <laughs> Do I you go. have one? Here I go. It's that thing when you're with someone and you love them and they know it and they love you and you know it, but it's a party and you're both talking to other people and you're laughing and shining and you look across the room and catch each other's eyes, but but not because you're possessive or it's sexual, but because this is the person that's in your life and it's funny and it's sad, but only because this life will end and it's this secret world that exists right there in public, unnoticed, that no one else knows about. It's sort of like how they say that other dimensions exist all around us, but we have we don't have the ability to perceive them. That's what I want out of a relationship. Or just life, I guess. You know what my favorite line from that movie is? Hmm. That's a great line from Francis Ha. <laughs> My favorite line from that movie is, I don't know you. Yeah. <laughs> that moment she just starts talking about her former roommate to a stranger, yeah. to yeah. a stranger because the stranger happens to be dating someone who she knows. And like the, like the, other, like the stranger should know this already. Mm-hmm. I don't know you. That's really great. We'll talk about more about Francis Hall later. Uh, yeah. Um, let's just, oh, let's most, just- most, annoying, most annoying trend of 2013. This is not just 2013. We already did that one. What what was your most annoying trend? Uh, Mine was... Oh, wait. Actually, we didn't do mine, but we did yours with the documentaries. Wasn't that what... Oh, I have another one with documentaries. (laughs) I didn't even get to to my one with documentaries. What's your most annoying trend? I got kind of tired, especially towards the end of people uh, getting angry about Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, Just like a lot of the media surrounding it, you know, sort of saying that... uh, 
oh, you know, it's it's morally corrupt, and you know, I think people really tend to blame the movie itself rather than seeing, hey, the character is morally corrupt, you know, and Scorsese is not out to judge this guy for his transgressions, you know, and I think it's that sort of response really irks me when people start like saying, oh my god, don't see that movie because it's morally corrupt and it's, it, you know, like the, the the response and even just like Leonardo DiCaprio coming out to defend it as saying, hey, we're not out to glorify what's taking place. This is just, we're just showing what took place. It's not to say that we're saying, go do this, you know. I I understand it creates a dialogue and that's great, but I just, I think people get too, uh, you know, up in arms about just like watching corrupt characters do crazy shit, you know. So um, I think I think I think the thing about uh, Wolf of Wall Street and all that is that number one, it will absolutely inspire people to go onto Wall Street and to make money. And you think not, it romanticizes it? No, it doesn't have to romanticize it. Um, you know, I, I talked about this a little bit. I think I was on the Movie Club podcast. And we were talking about Naked Lunch. Um, you know, a, 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 a work of art does not have to, or a work of fiction or whatever, it doesn't have to portray something as glamorous in order to make that sound attractive to people. Mm-hmm. Um, like, Naked Lunch is about this crazy fucking mental horror <laughs> that is addiction to heroin. But that, that book probably inspired more people to do heroin than anything. You know? Uh, I'm sure a lot of people watch Requiem for a Dream and were like, oh, this looks fucking great, you know? And they just ignore the end of it, you know? Wow. That's just, that's just how it works. Like, there, you can, you can, you know, there's denial and you can say, oh, this isn't from that, you know, that end part where he gets his arm amputated or whatever. That isn't me. I won't go that far, but I will have this fun beginning part where he's high and he's imagining playing keep away with a cop's gun. You know, like there's things can be attractive to people, whether or not they're depicted as glamorous or whatever in the way they're depicted. So this is a movie about all of the amazing things that uh, Jordan Belfort got to do because he got rich and he got rich by defrauding people. So Mm -hmm. it's going to, inspire people to defraud people. So anyone who says it's not going to do that, well, you're lying. That doesn't mean it's glamorizing these people. Uh, and I think Scorsese does judge him. I think Scorsese is... Um, I think Scorsese does... I mean, at the end... I guess, yeah. At the the end. end is supposed to be a gut punch where uh, he goes... When he's at jail and he's scared and then he goes, oh, that's right, I'm rich. And then it contrasts him playing tennis with uh, the FBI agent who mm. took him down riding the subway. Like that's, those are, that's a very s- explicit message. It's yeah. I, I think, I think why people are reacting is because this movie is so explosive and so energetic and so over the top. And I think the fact that a movie with this kind of energy um, and this kind of, it doesn't, that it doesn't explode into righteous rage by the end. Like it doesn't just, like that the ending isn't just this crazy um, righteous anger you know sort of a thing like like when i was watching the movie personally i kept hoping it would end like there will be blood like i wanted it to go way over the top i wanted it to be the the number one just anti-capitalist fucking gnashing of teeth angry <laughs> screed against against the concept of wall street mm-hmm. which is not you know and i think people they look to Scorsese and they go, well, he's, 
he's the one who can he's the greatest filmmaker living right now or the most accomplished director uh, living right now. Um, and he's you know, and they just want that from him and they're not going to get it from him. What he gives them is more interesting. He's sort of talking about how people are seduced and all that. Right. right. But I think the fact that this movie never stops to show the victims of Jordan Belfort um, is why people are interpreting it as being on his side, even though the reason it, uh, I, I, someone tweeted something recently that I saw that I thought was really insightful, which is that the, the scene. Um, and again, I don't want to spoil anything, but there's a scene in which uh, you see uh, uh, Jordan Belfort driving on a drug and he says, Oh, it's miraculous that I got home in one piece. And then later you find out that he didn't get home in one piece. He crashed his – he kept banging his car into everybody the whole way. Oh, that's so good. That's, that is the movie in a nutshell where it's he did not uh, – he didn't see the damage he did to everyone else. He mm-hmm. fucking blocked that out and therefore that's not what you see in the movie. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Sure. So anyway, I, uh, I just talked a lot about Wolf of Wall Street. So when I talk about Wolf of Wall Street later – Yeah, we'll make it short and sweet. We can make it a little shorter. Uh, my most, uh, honestly, my most annoying thing of 2013 is documentaries, which just throw in animation, like an animated segment, or just like it, because it always looks shitty because they're never dedicated to animation. I didn't see the. There was an animation about. There was a documentary about Graham Chapman, who is a the oh, member of Monty Python and died. Yeah, it sounded bad, but that movie is all animation. So I bet that movie at least pays more attention. But there's a ton of movies where. Like, they'll just do, do horrible After Effects stuff <laughs> where they'll just, like, add fake death to a photo. Uh, I don't know whether to blame I, – I, I almost – I want to blame two, two movies. I want to blame uh, Bowling for Columbine because it had that segment in the middle about the history of the NRA and the KKK. Oh, yeah. Which was that little animated thing, which wasn't – that in itself wasn't bad. But I can see a lot of documentary filmmakers who, you know, inspired by Ro- Michael Moore – That'd be great if they were inspired by Roger Moore, but as I was about to say, <laughs> we're inspired by Michael Moore. Look at that movie. Go, oh, okay, cool. We can add a little thing, and that will clear, and that will make exposition a little less boring to mm-hmm. the audience if we just throw in, we just zest it up with a little animation. Um, but it almost always looks horrible. Uh, again, the uh, uh, Avocateur, the uh, Morton Downey Jr. documentary, that had all sorts of really bad animation. Um, uh, even uh, you know, uh, Cutie and the Boxer, it does that After Effects thing where it'll show uh, her paintings, like her illustrations, and then it'll sort of animate the limbs of the characters, so the limbs are just wiggling around. Or, or a lot of do- or a lot of documentaries now, they'll show still photos, but they'll add fake death. So I think the other movie I want to blame is uh, Kid Stays in the Picture. Did you ever see that movie? Oh, yeah. Remember, like that was the whole uh, that was the entirety of Kid Stays in the Picture yeah. was like. Look at what we can do with computers now. We can make it look like these 2D photos are three-dimensional. God, I'm trying to remember what movie recently that, that really irked me. The, oh, it was the Bill Hicks. It was the Bill Hicks documentary. Yes, that's what I was going to say. The number yeah. one offender was the Bill H- American, the Bill yeah. Hicks story. Because that entire film is just the worst fucking Adobe After Effects yeah. animation you've ever seen. And it's, and it's such bullshit. I just hate – I mean there's so many – Amazing things you can do with documentaries. Shitty animation just makes your it just makes your movie look cheap and shitty. Don't do it. Um, even in really great documentaries that I like, they'll have 
shitty animated segments, and it bums me out. Okay, best newcomer. I'm gonna. It's tough. I, I don't think Brie Larson is necessarily a newcomer. Um, no, she's been in a few things. I think she right. was even in Twenty One Jump Street. Uh, but um, Scott Pilgrim. Oh, that's right. She was in that, huh? But I just think in terms of her performance, it's a breakout in Short Term Twelve. So maybe I'll just go with that disgruntled fisherman in Leviathan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I hope. <laughs> I hope all the fishermen in Leviathan, and all the fish for that matter, go yeah. on to have great careers. I agree. I wonder if the fish – because one of the great things about Leviathan is at the end credits, they credit all of the, the sailors, but they also credit all of the species. Oh, I wonder yeah. if those fish now have IMDb pages. <laughs> oh. That would be fantastic. Hey, Jim, we spent a lot of time. I know. I'm getting anxious. I'm like uh, because I'm so excited, and I usually like have an idea about your list. I mean, I know like some of the bigger ones that are going to make your list, but yeah. maybe it's because I'm not in front of you. I like just I can't even read your body language. That like you're not miming out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you're not I, miming out. Uh, you know, like oh, blackfish. We we used to do so much miming when we were in the same room recording. <laughs> yep. There was a whole other show that v- that listeners couldn't hear because it was all us miming and pantomiming to each other. I have no idea what your list looks like either, Jim. Oh so my God. I'm excited. How about we go to your number 10? Yeah. And then we'll just list off a bunch of runners up later. Oh, no, on. no, no. Let's, yeah, let's list off runners up now. Okay. okay. Um, should I do five or 10 runners up? Uh, whatever you do, that's what I'll do. I'm going to do 10 because it was okay. a good year. Yeah. Um, side effects? Really good commentary about the pharmaceutical industry uh, that manages to like transform into like a kind of a goofy De Palma esque twist in the third act, and a guy like Soderbergh pulls that off very well. I did uh, not see side effects. That's also on my list of shame. Yeah, it's it's on Netflix Instant. Go for it, dude. Yeah, it's good. Okay, I'll I'll, I'll try it out. But De Palma esque I mean, De Palma esque <sighs> is not the endorsement to me that well, it is to most I'm, people. It's not like that the whole time. It's just. It goes somewhere that I didn't see coming, but I, because I have a fascination with the pharmaceutical industry yeah. and how corrupt it is, that's probably a reason why I loved it so much. But uh, Jude Law is really good. Certainly. I mean, it's very Contagion-esque, if that's any endorsement. That is an endorsement. Number well, My another runner-up is your next. It's kind of tough deciding between this and We Are What We Are is my favorite horror film, but I went with this just because it was fun, mm-hmm. and you'll like it. Um, Prince Avalanche. All I can say is welcome back, David Gordon Green. Right. Welcome back. Loved it. Prince Avalanche was my number 21. It just missed it. Nice. I enjoyed uh, it a lot. The Hunt, which I brought up earlier. It's just about a man accused of uh, molesting his uh, student and what happens as a result of that. It's I think it's a Danish film. Uh, really intense. And it's it's worth seeing for some of the confrontations he has to experience and how it all wraps up. It's... Really, it's it's what I wanted from Prisoners. It's a taut thriller that's kind of like, it goes places that you wouldn't expect. Um, yeah. And then Mud, of course, Jeff Nichols' movie, really great. What can you say? Like, it's a good coming-of-age movie. It's thematically rich, but with this really nice, simple story. Uh, I really liked American Hustle. You know, Scorsese light, as some might say, but I think it's actually really just a great, fun, entertaining movie. Um, 12 Years a Slave, 
another great movie from Steve McQueen that uh, you know, there's a moment involving the main character standing on his tiptoes that affected me like no other scene this year. So uh, it's probably going to win Best Picture. Who knows? Um, and then a movie that uh, I don't know if you put it on your list of shame, but The Dirties. Did you see no, that? it was not on my list of shame. I did not see it. Okay. I haven't heard much about it. Give me a brief rundown of why you love this movie so much. It's it's actually one of the more personal experiences I had because it's um it's an interesting approach to the recent plague of bullying. Uh, you know, just bullies in our society in high school, and it's from the point of view of a couple of film nerds who love making home movies and want to capture these bullies. You know, uh, in action, fucking with them, and then it becomes really intense and kind of interesting. Uh, it has a lot of self-awareness about movies to where, you know, you'll be smiling at the references, including an amazing uh, cue musically that you'll really, really love. Um, it got distribution from Kevin Smith, who, you know, and I think it's mainly because it is a great movie for film nerds, but it's also saying something socially that's really interesting about um, how people tend to deal with uh, just assholes <laughs> in any way, like in society, like we want to escape and we want to confront. And it's kind of this really interesting interplay and the writer, director and actor in the movie, Matt Johnson. Uh, I'm not going to go out and say he's going to become like a Ryan Johnson. Uh, Cause this is like kind of raw sort of, you know, handheld camera kind of stuff. It's not necessarily as assured as brick, but I'm very excited to see where this guy goes. It's really like one of the more interesting movies of the year. Um, so, so is it better or worse than Vulgar? <laughs> oh God, I forgot about that. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah. So uh, and then, so that was your last uh, uh, honorable mention. Um, no, I got two oh, more. Okay, go ahead. And two that are very quick. Well, except one of them, we can argue about. Um, but The Wolf of Wall Street, we've talked about it quite a bit. Yeah, and uh, we'll talk about it later. Yeah, it's the best comedy of the year, probably. And then uh, my number one runner-up is uh, Nebraska, which I'm sad to hear that you just, you know, kind of dwindled on with... I don't know. It's... I, I think it's deftly played. It's got, like, the father and son element to it, but it's, you know, not super explicit. I think... I, li- I liked how Sergio approached it, where it was mainly focused on why... Bruce Dern is the way he is, and you know it's sort of summed up in one line towards the end. Once they finally get to uh, the uh, the place that you know apparently has the reward money for him, uh, you know he just believes everything that other people have told him, and generally, generally, ah, generationally, <laughs> um, I think like uh, some of the older generation they came back from fighting a war, felt this displacement, and did tend to f- fall under prey to certain things like that. And I think it's just kind of a good road movie. I think Alexander... I will say that I agree with you that some of the performances uh, don't feel genuine in ways that they have in the past in other Alexander Payne movies. Um, I thought the mom was kind of over the top, I think she's getting a lot of praise. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd certainly like the moment where she confronts everybody in the family. I thought that was really good. Um, but like other scenes where she's by the graveyard, eh, funny, but not really like 
you know, uh, a, a great insight to her character. Uh, but I, I mean, I'm curious to hear more about, like, did you not find, like, the, the two brothers who keep asking about how long it, it takes uh, them to get here? Funny. No, okay, so Nebraska is a movie I like. Um, it's a movie I would recommend. It's number 16 on my list. Okay. Uh, it's uh, above Spring Breakers. So if, if that gives you any ins- uh And it's above two guns for that matter. <laughs> um, so uh, I guess it, it's a matter of expectations. Um, be- uh, as far as me expecting it to be one of the movies of the year and finding it not to be. Um, and also – but it's – so I do think the screenplay is just bad. Like I think a lot of the dialogue, especially in the screenplay, is just really on the nose and artless and kind of graceless. Spelling and, it out to the audience? Yeah. I, I mean I would say the worst scene is the first scene with um, Bob Odenkirk where he's sort of – Yeah. Like that scene is weirdly – and but there's also a lot of just – it. it it's it's it, like just a lot of the dialogue is just okay. For example, uh, bullshit kind of movie moment that isn't a real thing, um, which is when people. Uh, okay, so this is something I talked about with gravity, um, as far as like uh, the kind of bullshit people talking about things that they would have already said previous to the camera rolling. <laughs> um, when when Bruce Dern and. Um, Will, ah, who, Will Forte. Will Forte. I was going to say Will Sasso, not Will Sasso. <laughs> when, when Brewster and Will Forte are getting in the car, mm-hmm. the mom is just chasing after them going, you're crazy. And she's saying all this stuff as if they just told her what they're doing, but they're already in the car, <laughs> which means that like at bare minimum, they told her. Then 15 minutes later, she started following them around saying, yeah, you're start, crazy. Started reacting as they're driving away. It's just yeah. It's just some. It's just some of those things that just ring as very false to me and very movie to me. And there's, um, and it's and it's just kind of broad. Uh, what I love, what I really, really respond to in Nebraska, is it never has a moment where Bruce Dern just breaks down and says, "I love you," and I could never tell you that I loved you, yeah. but you meant a lot to me. There's no bullshit moment where he just breaks character to have a big speech about. How whatever uh, and where the scene where you know, where uh, they sort of confront Stacy Keach in the bar. That's what I was expecting. Like just that's yeah. kind of like oh well here he's going to finally have his catharsis or something. And when it doesn't happen, I was like oh that actually makes me appreciate it more. It's staying consistent. Absolutely. So like the 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 observe. It's a really well observed story of what it is like to have a parent who is. Uh, who is not the parent, the ideal parent, and will never be your ideal parent. Yeah, and it's about loving them anyway. It's about just learning to lean into their, you know, to lean into their crooked angles and their rough edges, and just to love them for that and to accept them for yeah. that. Accepting their neuroses and idiosyncrasies, and uh, yeah, you know, I mean, I, again, the the father and son bonding that occurs. And it's not necessarily like, uh, you know, um, it's not like a Hollywood portrayal of it at all. And I think uh, Alexander Payne is just, he's really good at finding that balance, uh, you know, of comedy and pathos within a scene at times. Like, 
I could be laughing or I could feel really sorry for a character. Um, I'm not saying it's as strong as uh, Election or even about Schmidt. I've act- oh, and Citizen Ruth, for that matter. Um, I think it's probably his first three movies are still his best. Um, but I, I, I still was pleasantly moved by this movie and thought you know the cinematography was really gorgeous too. Yeah, the cinematography is great. I love – so here's something. I watched Citizen Ruth uh, with my partner Regina um, this year because she's a you know hardcore feminist and an activist and everything. So I'm like, oh, you have to see the greatest – you have to see the greatest movie about abortion ever. So you watch Citizen Ruth, and there's something about the way he shoots the suburbs in Citizen Ruth that reminded me of the way he shoots uh, the towns in Nebraska, which is he'll show the – and I can't really think of a better way to say it other than he shows the backs of buildings, which is to yeah. say when you actually drive around the suburbs or whatever, you don't That's just what, mm-hmm. you don't you don't just see a montage where you see the fronts of every store that you drive past. Right, right. You – You'll take a turn and then you'll see the alley behind a grocery store and there'll be all dumpsters and stuff like that. And it'll just be like whatever. It's where the trucks go in and they make a delivery. And every building – obviously every building has a back. But the suburbs is always just like here's your chili sign and here – you know, here's a montage. Here's the chili sign. Here's the grocery store sign. Here's the – and he kind of shows sides of uh, just at least – if nothing else, the geography of small towns and suburbs, like there's a really, there's a couple of really great shots that kind of show um, in the, the, the yard sort of in between the two houses uh, in, in the town, then the house, you know, the houses where all the family is. Um, I think it's the shot where it's showing the old man in the front yard. Who's just watching the cars go by. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's some like great shots where it just, you see the backs of the houses and you see the sides of the houses and no one ever shows the sides of the houses, you know? <laughs> and it's a it's very minor thing, but it's something I find compelling. And it's something I think he did in citizen Ruth as well. Um, and I, I, I would be interested to go back and see if, if his, if the way he depicts the geography or landscapes of, of locations, uh, I find as similarly striking in election or about Schmidt or sideways or other movies I haven't seen recently. Yeah. I think there are moments in, in, in especially in about Schmidt cause it's another road movie yeah. where he's visiting his old town and stuff that, that there's definitely highlights like that. And I'm excited cause we're doing Alexander Payne pretty soon too. Yeah. It'll be, no, it'll be, it'll be really fun. I think Alexander Payne's a good director. I just, uh, I I think his only movie that I'm absolutely in love with is citizen Ruth. I think that's one of the greatest movies ever. Um, yeah, I and, I think Citizen Ruth is amazing. I think I like Election the most. That's probably and it's also my first Alexander Payne movie that I just went, oh my god. Well, yeah, and it's been a while since I've seen Election, so we'll we'll revisit that one. Revisit that. Yeah, but basically, me, there's ahead. basically just there's a lot about Nebraska that just feels shabby to me. Um, I just think a lot of the non actors, and I looked it up because I agree that the mom is, it goes over the top too much. Mm-hmm. She's actually she's an actual actress. Oh yeah, no, she is. Jack Nicholson's wife in About Schmidt. Oh, I didn't. I didn't even recognize her from that. Yeah. I just. I just had to look her up on IMDb because I figured she was one of the non-actresses, non-actors. <laughs> but no, she's one of the actual actors. And I think a lot of the non-actors just give bad performances. I think a lot of the extended family in Nebraska are just kind of bad. Um, and I think a lot of the script, especially more the dialogue than the story or the beats or whatever, are is, is kind of bad. Um, and it, it kind of bummed me out. 
because I think there's a lot about that movie that's special. I think it. I think it's pretty special. Sure. Um, what are your ten runners up, real quick? So I'm gonna go ahead, uh, real quick. I'll list the without any commentary. Here are the uh, because there are 28 movies of 2013 I'd recommend. So here's 28 through 21: um, The Conjuring, History of Future Folk, Bo Burnham, What, which is a comedy special. It's very good. Uh, is the Man Who Is Tall Happy? All Is Lost, Pain and Gain, This Is the End, Prince Avalanche. So those are 28 through 21 for me. Um, now, my honorable mentions, I would say uh, Iron Man 3. It's a Shane Black movie. Oh, yeah. That's probably my number 26. Yeah. Shane Black movie. Really funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, really enjoyable. All the parts where it has to be a Marvel movie and all the action scenes are kind of disappointing and lame, but <laughs> all the all the other parts are great. So uh, Iron Man 3. Two Guns we've talked about. Uh, it's a Disaster. A really yeah. funny, funny, low-key uh, kind of movie about just – uh, it's it's sort of the it's sort of the low budget flip side to the world's end, and uh, this is the end. Um, David Cross is funny, and everyone is funny, and it has a really great ending. Uh, yeah, has a fantastic ending. So it's a disaster. Really good. Number seventeen, Spring Breakers, uh, which is a movie I kind of hate uh, for the second half of it, but I find the style of Spring Breakers so intoxicating that I can forgive that the actual story of it is the lamest sort of crime film you've ever oh, seen. You know what? I'm changing my best use of a song. I love the Britney Spears song. No, I didn't like that at all. Oh, I thought it was funny. Honest, honestly, the moment everyone loves James Franco in spring breakers and he's not bad in it, but the moment he enters the movie, it kind of sinks for me hmm. because at that point it becomes the world's worst crime movie you've ever seen with <laughs> the world's worst crime boss ever played oh, by Gucci Mane. What did um, Tom Sharpling just, what was the movie he mentioned? When he, I don't when recall. This, oh, God. Ah, that's going to bug me. But he said it's like, uh, oh, Spring Breakers is just like, oh, that movie with the girls, and I think it started. Oh, uh, oh, oh, it's Sugar and Spice. Yes, thank you. It's basically Sugar and Spice. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. I mean, um, yeah, it's – I mean it's – but it's also just like the story behind, oh, the history, but behind Alien and, and Gucci Mane's character. It's the worst shit ever. And all of the super, super overt like, this is my shit. Look at my shit. Money. Fucking money. Like all of that really, really over-the-top broad kind of quote-unquote commentary on whatever the fuck. Mm-hmm. Don't, I don't like it. It's, it's all horrible, I think. But the style of Spring Breakers is intoxicating. Uh, number 16 for me was Nebraska. Cool. Um, number 15 for me was Stories We Tell. I'm sure we'll talk about that later. Oh, yeah. Um, number 14 for me is Blackfish. Um, Blackfish being a movie that has – it's sort of sunk in, in – uh, No upon pun reflection. Yeah, <laughs> upon reflection. Uh, it, I, I will go ahead and say you, I can't deny Blackfish uh, – you remember the movie Blindness? Oh, yeah. So Blindness, for me, I thought was a really good movie. Um, and then I watched it, rewatched it. And I'm like, oh, that movie's not all that good at all. <laughs> but it was a movie I was really into because it made me have an epiphany, an emotional epiphany um, about my pacifism. Uh, yeah. So it, had me, it made me have a philosophical epiphany, which is why I responded to it so strongly. I think the same is true of you and uh, um, the, uh, the Art of Lying or Lying. What was that Ricky Gervais movie? Oh God! The invention of lying. The invention of lying. Right. You had sort of an epiphany while watching that movie. Yeah. 
and you and that and it's just sort of like, well, I can't discount. This, yeah, this is the movie that made me have that epiphany, even though it's not necessarily a great movie. I I really like Blackfish. It's it's definitely my top thirty. Um, Basically, it, the epiphany I had, which I I talked about on the uh, uh, Miyazaki episode, was that I it was the first film I'd ever seen or first anything I'd ever encountered in my life that made me uh, seriously consider that animals had emotional lives that were comparable to human beings. Well, duh. Uh, well, I don't have – I've never had pets growing oh, up. Oh, that's true. That's true. I've had, discussion, I, I've had discussions since about why that's something that struck me about the movie but struck no one else. And the conclusion I've come to is I never had a pet growing up. I mean mm. I had fish and I had uh, – and my sister had rabbits. But none of those ever seemed to express any kind of emotion other than fear or hunger. So, And you had fish bootlegs too. Well, yes, uh, but those expressed all kinds of emotion because their 12-minute version of Farmhouse brought me to tears. <laughs> so anyway, that's Blackfish number 14. Uh, Gravity, uh, very amazing uh, special effects blockbuster. Mm-hmm. Easily the best big-budget blockbuster of the year. Um, number 12, Her, which I think is a really, really great movie about relationships, even if it's uh, a little what it accomplishes with the premise it sets up feels a little disappointing. Um, the premise it sets up and the world it creates. Uh, but I, I do like her quite a bit. And then my number 11 was Inside Lewin Davis, which is a very Ooh. interesting, very interesting Coen Brothers movie, but certainly not one I'm passionate about. Um, hmm, that could be like the serious man of the, this year. Where yeah, it is. I mean, it is, this, it is the similar, thematically, it's the story of the serious man or Barton Fink. It's just... Um, I, I like it more than a serious man, hmm. Um, hmm. but I don't. It, but it seems a little too. I don't know. There's a lot about Lewin Davis, which is great. So you shouldn't. I shouldn't discount it. And, but. and and with like with a lot of Coen Brothers movies, maybe after a second viewing, it'll shoot up higher for you. Certainly, certainly. Yeah. I'm excited to see that. So I'm we try. And, I'm going to try and do a double feature of her and Inside Lewin Davis. I'm so Jesus, to... we're over an hour in. Uh-huh. We should probably uh-huh. get to. Uh, our our uh, top ten of the year. Yeah, maybe we'll just run down all the voicemails and emails after we do our list. I mean, that's kind of not necessarily the approach we've had in the past. But maybe we should just, since we're on a roll, let's just keep going, and then we'll uh, just save everybody for the final the final act of this episode. Uh, I don't know. Okay, I think I think that will make everyone turn off. Do you think us, you're getting sick of us, us reading emails? I think people will turn it off. Well, Let's go ahead. Let's. I think we should intersperse it. Okay. Number ten. Number ten. Number ten. Number ten is uh, a movie that I don't need to talk too much about because everybody on planet Earth has already seen it. Especially if you like going to the movies and being amazed. Um, and I can recognize certain flaws as being an issue for some, but they weren't for me. And that is uh, Gravity. Alfonso Caron's kind of a space odyssey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I don't know. It's invigorating. It's just you know, like a movie that, you know, just you, you watch it and you, your, your jaw is on the floor, if, especially if you see it. I mean, that's the thing is like it might have even been higher if I just went, OK, I just saw it on the big screen, had an amazing time. I um, rewatched it um, at home with my roommate and... I wish I'd been in a theater seeing it again. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) 
I can uh, I can imagine it's not nearly the same thing. Yeah, but even with its uh, bombastic score, I was I was I was still happy with it. It's a landmark movie in, in the science fiction genre, and you can't deny like that. Uh, Sandra Bullock, she can act really good. And you know, I mean, like I think the only thing that keeps it kind of lower on my list is really just like a dialogue, like oh, it's gonna be a it's gonna be a rough ride home or. She says something like that, like towards the end when she's finally gearing up. She says something ridiculous. I don't yeah. think it's. I don't. I don't think it's like it's going to be a rough ride, or it's, no, it's going to be a wild ride or something. Oh man! If she says, well, "I can't," I, I, swear, I don't remember this line. I didn't I even swear, remember. This. Like towards the end, because I'm like, okay, get, get Heather, get get ready for it. Get ready for like a really bad dialogue moment that's going to make you roll your eyes, and it did for me. Um, but. I don't know, even other moments where people are like, oh, those astronauts wouldn't talk about that shit. Um, I, I don't know. I just the, really like there's only like two or three lines that made my eyes roll, and that's not enough to discount it as an amazing film. I mean, it's, a, it's primarily, above anything else, it's not a narrative. It's an ex- ex- experiential. Mm-hmm. It's, it's about the experience. It's about feeling like you're in space. And to that end, I mean, <sighs> what Alfonso Cuaron did with the camera and what he had to... I mean, I'm sure he didn't. I'm sure there's a ton of technicians and cameramen and all sorts of people who don't get all the credit that Alfonso Cuaron does for the film. But for what was invented for this film, even for this film to exist, is just jaw-dropping and great. Hell to the yeah. Um, I really, yeah, I, I like I like Gravity quite a bit. It's at just first-rate excitement. Um, I've heard it compared as the, uh, the Jurassic Park of 2013 okay as far as being a big big budget special effects dazzling special effects extravaganza sure um with maybe with maybe a questionable emotional core (laughs) (laughs) um but no gravity is great can i go and read you one of the lists that we got sent oh please do so this is i'm reading you this list because uh this is my partner uh regina um and uh we were talking about gravity the other day and she had sort of this um, epiphany that I had never considered about gravity that made me like it a little more. So she talks about this in her list. So I'm going to go ahead and read her list. Uh, number 10 for her was, is the man who is tall happy? The uh, Michelle Gondry uh, documentary about Noam Chomsky. Okay. Uh, number, number nine was blackfish. Uh, number eight was the punk singer uh, with, to which she says she knows it's a mediocre documentary, but riot girl uh, has had such a lasting influence on her identity uh, that it was very personal for her, and um, it gave her a, a deep uh, a deep connection in the theater. And also, she was excited that it was a crowd funded documentary, and that oh yeah, um, that's cool. And that maybe more documentaries about you know different subcultures and stuff could be mm-hmm. crowd funded. Uh, you know, more voices and perspectives always a good thing. Nice. Um, so uh, that was punk singer for her. Number seven was Blue Jasmine. Number six was Nebraska. Number five was Cutie and the Boxer. Number four was Inside Lewin Davis. Number three was The World's End, um, about which she says that uh, she saw it in theaters over the summer, but it didn't really hit her until she went home for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> about uh, about oh how, yeah, that makes sense. Sure. How about how time can make familiar people into and familiar people and places into strangers, and having to let go of who you were in high school. Um, it's uh, in the microcosmic sense, it can feel like the end of the world uh, or at least a world, at least a world ending. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Number two for her was gravity. 
Um, and so this is the this is what she uh, thought. She says she says she loves when science and spirituality are shown as complementary elements. And the two moments in Gravity that she found the most spiritual weight uh, evoke images that wouldn't be part of our visual language without science, which is something I had never considered before. Uh, she said it before, which is the two the two big moments that sort of pause the movie um, are the one where Sandra Bullock is kind of floating uh, like a fetus, uh, like kind of in the fetal position. Oh, yeah. And she's sort of framed by the window, and it's like she's being reborn. Yep. Um, and the, at the very end, when she climbs out of the lake, like, uh, and it's like the, you know, the, the history of evolution, yeah. you know, it's just, it just feels like the people climbing out of the primordial ooze and something Regina had come up with those. Those are two images that are scientific. We wouldn't know what a fetus looks like in the womb unless we had ultrasound, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't know what, uh, we wouldn't have ideas of evolution unless there were scientists, um, so the concept of gravity as exploring what's important about space travel and what's important about science and how it connects to humans as spiritual, you know, on, and their spiritual side, um, as far as just our shared knowledge, uh, I find really interesting, especially when the future of NASA is so, uh, you know, up for, up for question. These are very similar um, concepts and ideas that I had while watching Contact. Really? Interesting. Yeah. So, uh, and then her number one was Upstream Color, uh, which she said it was the most, is a very honest portrayal of learning to connect with other people post trauma and integrating your painful experiences with your personal history while not letting them eat you alive. She said, uh, I cried during movies before, but it's rare that a movie makes me cry days after seeing it, let alone a month after seeing it. Um, so her number one was Upstream Color. Never heard of it. <laughs> Pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, you want to know what my number 10 of the year was? Please. Uh, it t- totally took me by surprise. It's a movie I just watched on Netflix because it kind of seemed interesting. Cutie and the Boxer. Oh, okay. Yeah, you talked about that. Mm-hmm. Yes. I've, I've, I talked about a lot of you know what makes that movie special. It's about two artists, um, two kind of elderly Japanese artists. Um, i to add that to my cue. One of them, one of them is a uh, sort of a well-known artist, was a very influential artist in the 70s. Um, and the other... And the other is uh, this woman who moved to New York to be an artist, and she sort of fell in love with him and his very free spirit and you know, kind of got swept up into his world. But the movie takes place in you know, 2013 or 2012 or in the 21st century where they now have to deal with uh, sort of their shared history and the fact that uh, being an artist, uh, especially an, an avant-garde artist, you're, you know, they're not painting people's portraits or anything, uh, means that they're constantly lacking money. Hmm. Um, and it's about all the things that were attractive about him. Uh, you know, his free spirit and just his love for life and everything are now the things that annoy her most about him. (laughs) Um, and he has quit drinking, but his, his alcoholism in the past has left a legacy, uh, as far as, uh, as far as their money problems and their son. Um, one of the most painful moments is sort of the moment where they talk about their son and, how their son's now an alcoholic and they don't know what to do about that. Um, and they're just, and both of them are just not really, they, they seem very kind of emotionally unavailable to their son because they're both trying to, they're both still struggling to be paid artists mm-hmm. uh, and to put on exhibitions and stuff. And because he was an influential artist in the seventies, he sees himself as the real genius of the couple and her as his assistant. Um, but her work 
um, is all about her life with him, and it feels a lot more honest and a lot more sort of real and uh, and heartfelt. Uh, whereas he his is sort of avant garde and a rejection of emotions and stuff. And like for example, the the title comes from Cutie is the character that she created in her like illustrations. That's sort of her surrogate, and the boxer is one of styles of his painting is that he ties sponges to boxing gloves, um, dips the sponges in paint and then punches a giant, uh, canvas. So that's, that's the kind of artist that she is. And that's the kind of artist that he is. Um, but because they've just been together so long and they're so comfortable, they are very revealing on camera to the, to the extent that I've never seen in a, in a, in a documentary about their relationship. Um, and about their feelings towards each other and their love towards each other, but also their resentment and all of that. Hmm. And it's it sounds a lot like the Swell Season documentary. They're possibly. Very, they're very revealing about their relationship in ways that kind of was surprising to me. Yeah, but the thing that I mean, I I've not seen the Swell Season documentary, but I imagine just the difference due to their ages. Sure. Yeah. No. I'm, is that there is a sense of this is how it's going to be for the rest of our lives because we're both mm-hmm. nearing our seventies, or I think. In the case of him, and I, I re- apologize for not remembering either of the artist's uh, full names at the moment, but in the case of him, I think he is in his seventies, and it's just sort of it's uh, their their bitter feel the bittersweet sort of feelings of their marriage uh, is tempered by this sort of uh, sadness and this combination of sadness and a, and and uh, an acceptance, where it's just sort of. Like uh, this is where my life was, and this is what my life is. But at the same time, I can accept this is what my life is, and I can only move forward. And it's it's really it's very potent, and it doesn't have to change the form of the documentary. It doesn't have to you know come up with new ways that break the fourth wall or that play with the ideas of fiction and reality like a lot of documentaries in this year. Um, It is just a movie about. Uh, it, it's just a movie told in present tense with a few flashbacks setting up, you know, their past or whatever. But that is really that it's just very, very effective because it's just so honest and it's and it, it is. I mean, uh, so not to reveal too much of my list, but a lot of my top ten of this year are documentaries, um, a shocking amount, um, uh, and. A lot of them are the kind of documentaries that are just playing with the form and are changing things, and they're very, uh, you know, they're very experimental. But this is just, this gave me faith that you can have a documentary that's just documenting someone, and it's just going to be okay, and you and it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, groundbreak or anything, and it can still be just as heartfelt and emotional as um, any, you know, any a, any fictional film. Well, now I feel like a dumbass for missing it. Well, it's on Netflix Instant, everybody. It's on Netflix Instant. Well, I'll Cute. bring it up if I see it soon. Cutie and the Boxer, really amazing movie about love. I would have liked this movie probably. I probably would have sought it out sooner if it had been called Cutie and the Beast. Mm-hmm. Probably. Should I go on to my number nine and bury I, that horrible joke? I think you should. Number nine is a movie I'm guessing could be higher on your list. Yes. I have a hard time describing this movie. And I don't know if people will enjoy it as much as I did. Um, but at the same time, I'm fascinated by it. Trying to peel back the layers of what it's trying to say. It's called Computer Chess. 
It's kind of an enigma. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, I really loved it. Loved everything about it. That is that makes me so happy to hear. I never got to hear your thoughts on computer chess. Um, I'm I need to watch it again. It's weird. Like the first time I tried watching it, I was really tired, so I fell asleep. And then I had really fucked up dreams. <laughs> uh, and then uh, second time I watched it, you know, it was still late, but I was watching it kind of like feeling sleepy, but knowing I'm not going to fall asleep because I'm finding it so compelling and weird. Um, th- the detours in this movie are baffling. Um, <clears throat> the appearance of cats just popping up. Yeah. Wow. Love that. <laughs> uh, the really weird uh, and awkward seduction scene, or the attempt uh, to get that uh, one character into a three-way. Um, that scene's amazing. Uh, yeah. Yeah. This is probably... And it's interesting because I remember Colin bringing me over uh, a movie called A Mutual Appreciation. He It was actually like... Uh, he had a screener of it. It was, he was on VHS. This is like four or five years ago or something. Probably longer. Um, and this was like the mumblecore birth around that time. Uh, this director, Andrew Bajolski, I think is his name. Yeah. Um, and I, I was really taken with it because it was like watching, oh, this is like uh, Real Life Tigers, the movie. It's just like hanging out with a DIY musician and, you know, him <laughs> going to parties and feeling awkward, but like he rocks on stage and connects with people that way. It was just, you know, kind of a low-key, lo-fi movie uh, about a struggling musician. And and then this comes along, and I'm just like, this is this is not a mumblecore movie <laughs> at all. It kind, it, it I kind of is. Yeah, it's 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 kind. Everything it is, it's only kind of it. It's kind of a yeah. comedy. It's kind of a found footage movie. Kind of. <laughs> it's you know. I love the fact that it's hard to describe. It's just something you have to see to believe. I mean. It's not a movie like if you come back and say, I didn't like that at all, I didn't get it, or you just didn't find it funny or whatever. I'm not going to argue about it. But I just, it, it's it's a fascinating movie. I can't wait to watch it again um, and see if like I uncover more things about it that, you know, just haven't occurred to me yet. But uh, it's it's just, I, I don't know what to say. I just found it incredibly original. Um, and I don't know if this director is going to continue like making something this kind of off the beaten path, but I hope so. I I I can't imagine this happening again. This is this feels like I mean uh, I've read interviews with him, and part of part of what this movie is about is the death of uh, the death of uh, what of of uh, celluloid of like film, <laughs> um, and so it's about sort of I mean it is about like sort of a turning point in technology and it's about and and it's shot on these cameras. So it's uh, like these, a low five holy motors. Yeah, it's very <laughs> low it's low grade they're shot on these kind of low grade uh consumer level video cameras from the from like the late seventies or early eighties. Um and I mean I just it just feel and I think a lot of the script was a lot of the dialogue's improvised. A lot of the film is improvised. Mm. I, I can't imagine anything – this just feels – I mean I can't even tell – I mean and I'll talk more about computer chess in a moment. But it's it's not even coherent enough to think that it's anything other than a happy accident, <laughs> you know? Yeah. 
I didn't intend to have gravity and computer chess back to back. It's like in- insanely vastly different movies, but oh, certainly. I just uh, I loved it. I I I I'm, I think it's one of those movies I'd be very interested to see if you know, like if he puts it out on DVD or something or on VHS. Uh, if he would like, you know, include some extras and the commentary and all that, because just curious about the intent and the execution behind it too. Yeah, it yeah, it's it's it definitely feels and then you you described it as an enigma. I think that's a great word for it. Cool. Let's move on. Um, uh, should, do, you want, should, do you want me to do a list? I can do a list. Yeah, real quick. go ahead, do a list for us. Um, one of my favorite guests who uh, came on the John Cassavetes episode and was responsible for putting "Killing of a Chinese Bookie" in my top ten of all time. Spoiler alert! If you want to know my new top ten. Uh, I am a huge fan of this guy and uh, his podcast, Good Old Film Jive. Uh, Zach Batanti sent us an email with his top five and some honorable mentions. The honorable mentions really fast are Magic Magic, Place uh, Place Beyond the Pines, Museum Hours, The Hunt, Gravity, Before Midnight, Mud, uh, Viven Las Antipotas, Lone Ranger, Stories We Tell, This is Martin Bonner, and Bastards. So we need we need to catch up with bastards. I think being Claire Denise fans, certainly. Uh, his number five was Upstream Color. Number four was Inside Lewin Davis. Number three, surprisingly, uh, To the Wonder. There are defenders of this movie. Uh, you know, I know people thought of it was disappointing, but he thought it was an all-encompassing, visually immersive story about self-discovery with all the Malick digressions, and he found it to be in a, a true piece of impressionistic filmmaking. So. It was okay. And number two was the... <laughs> number two was the act of killing, um, which I'm assuming we're probably going to be talking about. And uh, number one, another movie I think we'll be talking about on your, on your end, uh, Leviathan. Yes. Yeah. Good list, man. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad his movie, his list syncs up with mine as far as mostly including kind of baffling impressionistic movies that are hard to hard to put into words yeah that's why it's gonna be a great episode Mm -hmm. let's keep going sure uh jim what's your number nine movie of the year i already did it that's right (laughs) it's your turn hey jim what's my number nine movie of the year? (laughs) i don't know but i want you to tell me throw out a guess world's end nope it's uh francis ha oh cool well that's coming up soon francis ha is it's a fantastic character study um you know about just a really 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 endearing and honestly it's nice to just see an endearing character in their 20s in in indie cinema yeah (laughs) just someone who isn't some quote-unquote hipster or some unquote on not quoted but just straight on asshole (laughs) like and she didn't fit that quirky manic pixie dream girl persona not at all. Uh, she is uh, just uh, – uh, it's uh, – she just reminds me of my friends, um, Francis. <laughs> That's a good review. Greta, Greta, Greta Gerwig's performance and Greta Gerwig who I think co-wrote the script or did she write it herself? I think she co-wrote it. She co-wrote it with Noah Baumbach who directed the film. Um, you know, she's just created this character who's very, very believable and very fun and – I mean, there's a lot about Francis Ha I love. I love the sense of geography um, 
as far as uh, it, it's it's not a very straightforward narrative film. It's it's more episodic. It's more um, you know about again a, a character study. So the way the episodes are sort of divided are by uh, a black title card, which reveal her new address um, at any given point, and it's always a, and sort of the, her progression of apartments says a lot about sort of her sort of downward slide into uh, into money troubles and into troubles with friends and things like that. And, um, you know, she's, she's impulsive and she's, uh, she's awkward, uh, and, but not like silly, funny, haha, awkward, but she is just shares too much and doesn't have a funny joke all the time. And, um, and says things that are a little off putting or is too forward with people. Like when she, uh, just decides on a whim to go to Paris Go to Paris and because ah, at a party that. someone part someone goes, Oh, we have an apartment in Paris. If you ever if you ever end up going to Paris sometime, you know, go ahead and contact us. And then forty five minutes later, she's like, you know what? I decided I actually am going to Paris. <laughs> uh and that whole oh god, that whole sequence in Paris where oh. she's just determined to have a good time and it's there's nothing then nothing makes it harder to have fun than being alone and putting pressure on yourself to have fun. <laughs> <laughs> and I I love that this is a movie where she is not defined at all by romance. Um it's not it's like the movie very early on ends up with her breaking up with her boyfriend in a great great scene in yeah. which the, in which the two in here and here's how most breakups actually happen in my experience, which is two people who know that they shouldn't be together play chicken to make the other person break up with them. <laughs> they play like emotional abuse chicken, <laughs> basically. I think that's my new Twitter name. Emotional abuse chicken. That's probably too long, but well, that's a, that'd be a good meme. That'd yeah. be a good meme. It's just like a picture of a chicken and then some something emotionally <laughs> abusive that they're saying. <laughs> I would have sex with you more if you were less fat and it's a chicken in the middle. <laughs> Emotionally abusive chicken. But you know what? Like, it's just so well observed and it's just so low key. And unlike a lot of Noah Baumbach movies, it's not savage. It's not really angry. Um, uh, I mean, I love a lot of Noah Baumbach movies, even with their, even with his quote unquote unlikable characters. You know, um, I can relate to characters who are assholes. Like, you know, we talked about the squid and the whale and the Noah Baumbach. Baumbach episode. I see bad parts of myself in every one of those characters, but it is nice uh, just to see someone who's so endearing and isn't. I, 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 and I, and I've actually been thinking. I can't really think of a good way to put this other than like it isn't girls, <laughs> like it isn't trying to make uh, like I'm in my twenties and that's a thing. And here's the thing about being in your twenties. Here's the thing. Like it's oh. not. Arrested Development, here we go. Yeah, it's not trying to be too grand with the state. It's not trying to sound more, uh, like, more, uh, it's, it's not trying to, it's not trying to, you know, be more deep than it is. It's not trying to uh, convince you that it's making some grand statement about a generation. Or anything. It's just about a solipsistic kind of character um, who just can't get out of her own head enough to realize how she comes across to people. Um and but it doesn't blame her for that because I mean a lot of the fault is just the kind of people she's with. All, I mean, I say it's nice to see a movie about twenty somethings where everyone isn't assholes and hipsters, but there are assholes and hipsters in this movie certainly. 
Um, yeah, they don't fit the the stereotype of them. They're just who they are. And I I think they do fit stereotypes, but I think yeah. I think they fit stereotypes for a reason. I think they exist. The stereotypes of a Brooklyn of a twenty something year old trust fund kid who lives in Brooklyn they <laughs> exist because that's an actual type yeah, of person yeah. that exists. Yeah, and and Bombax familiar with that. And it isn't overly and it isn't overly angry towards those people either. Right. Even even the ones who you are assholes that are like I don't know. There's it's really beautiful, uh wonderful uh film that I just I just uh, uh it, it felt very well served without having to feel go the extra mile and try to be the graduate. See, <laughs> you the, know what I mean? The downside of uh when when you get to say your title first is like, oh crap! You're pretty much just summing it up perfectly, to where like, I don't have to, I don't have much to say because he's he's doing his thing, and uh, you know you 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 summed it up beautifully, and we'll talk about it just a, a wee bit more in a minute or two. Sure. Um, do you know who um, uh, was our guest on the Noah Baumbach episode? My good friend Dan Solomon. That's right. And. Um, He's not really like – I mean he loves kicking and screaming, but uh, the more recent wave – I mean he likes Squid and the Whale, but he's actively hated um, Margot at the Wedding in Greenberg. So he, w- he he actually didn't go out of his way to see it, and I'm dying for him to see this because this is not a movie where everybody is an asshole. Um, so I'm hoping he likes this and adds it to his list, but the movies that he did include were 12 Years a Slave, American Hustle. Before Midnight, Don John, The East, which I didn't care for very much. I just I'm, I have like an aversion to that uh, writer director team uh, or the writer actress team of forgot her name, but they did Another Earth. Ugh. Um, Gravity. Brit, Brit Marling. Yes, thank you. Brit and Zat Bamagul. he put Gravity. Uh, Hunger Games, which I never got to see, but I heard is pretty good. Uh, Much Ado About Nothing, Prince Avalanche, and The World's End. Good list, Dan. Real good. But he's got to see, you know, uh, Francis Ha, her, Inside Lewin Davis, and some others, too. But, uh, yeah, I just wanted to include him. He's not like, you know, the the, the movie journalist, but man, he's making a name for himself as a just an all-around music and pop culture journalist in Texas, and I'm proud of him because he's been a friend of mine for years and years. Good job. Um, which actually is kind of an appropriate segue to my number eight, which um, is a comedy about alcoholism and nostalgia. Um, what can I say? I'm 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 on Team Edgar Wright till the end. Get it? The end. The world's end. That's the movie. Uh, I don't get it. <laughs> I don't either. Okay, so good. It plays out like uh, kind of a interesting play on the twelve-step approach, kind of. You know, I mean, it's not like overt about it, but obviously his uh, alcoholism and uh, tendency to dwell in the past has gotten the better of him, while his other friends have moved on and matured. Um, so it almost has like a big chill meets invasion of the body snatchers mashup kind of going on here because uh, i i love movies where uh guys reunite and you know catch up and bond all over again this 
uh, I don't know if it's necessarily like my favorite of the trilogy. Um, probably be, probably just because the science fiction element isn't kind of as infectious and awesome as the the zombies and Shaun of the Dead and then the uh, action movie in um, Hot Fuzz. But I I still had a blast with this movie. I thought it was hilarious. What you know, like he, he he's he's such a master at the rapid fire witticisms and incredibly poignant interactions between guys hanging out and just. He's so good at just uh, genuine reflection and moments of honesty without, like, having it be saccharine. It just sort of plays out very organically amongst the characters. And uh, it's it's interesting where this movie goes. I found it really hysterical with, uh, you know, the... The, uh, the, the, the overlord sort of uh, coming down and preaching, in a way, and... I, I don't know how I felt about like the, 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 the final, final ending with the apocalyptic sort of uh, wrap-up. That's kind of like the only thing that's keeping it from being even higher on my list. Um, I didn't think it was bad, but I thought it wasn't as strong as everything else that came before it. But um, I don't know. I just it, it's, it's a good comedy about nostalgia, and I, I really liked Edgar Wright's approach to this, as always. And it was great to see Simon Pegg um, play against type. Uh, and him embracing like the goth culture a little bit because I know I went through that phase with my friends. So, <laughs> but yeah, great movie, man. Loved it. Yeah, it's um, you got really loud for. Did you do something? I didn't. Okay. Uh, Maybe it's because I, I was talking for so long without. Okay, you're you're coming down. Skype Hello? is weird. Hello. Yeah, you're fine now. All right, I'm gonna go ahead and just take it from here. Can you make a note somewhere to edit out this part? Uh, yes. 2.15. Duly noted. All right. Go ahead. Um, yeah, it's, it, it, I mean, no one writes scripts like Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg. They're just, they're just tight, tight as a fucking drum. And they're just really, really fascinating machines to watch yeah. uh, unfold. I'll be talking more about the world's end later oh, on my list. Do you happen to have another top ten list that you can read before we get to your number eight? I want to. I want to read the top the top uh, ten list from our good friend Robert Reinecke. Nice, great guy. So um, yeah, he's an amazing guy. He was on our. Uh, um, oh, what's that director's name? Uh, Henry George Clouseau. There we go, Henry George Clouseau. He's on our Henry George Clouseau episode. He's on our Terrence Fisher upcoming Terrence Fisher episode, which I promise will happen eventually. Uh, Robert, yeah, maybe Halloween <laughs> around yeah, Halloween. That'd be fun. Um, he said that it was a terrific year for independence and documentaries. It was a good year without a bona fide masterpiece for foreign films. It was a bad year for blockbusters, with one notable exception. Mm-hmm. Um, I would agree. Uh, his uh, honorable mentions include uh, Twenty Feet from Stardom, Cutie and the Boxer, Wadja. And Ken Loach's The Angel's Share. Ooh, new uh, Ken Loach movie. Hmm. That's a director I need to catch up with. I've heard a lot about him. Yeah. So his top tens are to follow. Uh, the great, number 10, The Great Beauty, which felt like a worthy heir to Fellini and had a gorgeous depiction of Rome. Number nine, Stories We Tell, which was more personal and revealing than any other film I saw this year. Mm-hmm. Number eight was No, which told a great story of advertising and democracy rising. I really liked it. Um, number seven was Upstream Color, which left me with all the right kinds of questions. 
Number six was The Broken Circle Breakdown, a wonderful story of a relationship, music, and trying to find meaning. Number five was Mud, which was filled with terrific performances and a welcome sense of place. Number four was Before Midnight, which struck out a new raw emotional territory, deepening the series. Number three was Short Term 12, with Brie Larson and the whole cast being terrific. Number two was 12 Years a Slave, which didn't tell me much new, but had terrific ensemble, wonderful framing cinematography, and walked the line between brutal and restrained so it never became a cartoon or a screed. And his number one film of the year was Gravity, which is the most immersive, thrilling, and most beautiful film of the year. Mm-hmm. Real quick, can I uh, give him his top five film experiences of the year? Okay, yeah, for sure. He saw uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey in 70mm at the Music Box. Oh, lucky guy. I wanted mm-hmm. to go. Yeah, same. Uh, he saw Upstream Color uh, and all the questions and conversations that came after watching that. Uh, mm-hmm. He got to see Pacific Rim at the drive-in, and it reminded him what it was like to be 10 and watching kaiju films every Saturday night. Um, nice. he, was, he got to dance in the aisles while watching Stop Making Sense at the Milwaukee Film Festival. Uh, oh, that's something you did. That sure is. Uh, he said there's more than one way to watch a movie than other being a silent analytical robot. <laughs> sorry. And then uh, – <laughs> sorry, says the silent analytical robot, breaking his silence. Um, and number five was seeing the Soviet silent film Earth with live ac- original accompaniment by the group Altos in a packed house in the Milwaukee Film Festival. It was a one-of-a-kind experience not to be repeated. And he wishes us a great 2014. Uh, right back at you, Robert. Thanks for the list. Yeah. Nice. Patrick, what's your number eight? My number eight movie is uh, the funniest movie of the year, uh, which is The Wolf of Wall Street. Oh, cool. Um, so there's – so there's – so it's interesting because um, as far as these quote-unquote Scorsese movies go and people like to say whenever people are talking about, oh, Boogie Nights is just a bunch of Scorsese and Altman Ripoffs or oh, um, I didn't see American Hustle, but I'm sure when they ca- call something a Scorsese movie, they're referring to Goodfellas Casino, <laughs> that that kind of movie. Mm-hmm. But what's funny about Scorsese is like he doesn't honestly make that many of those kinds of movies. Um, no, I mean it's, you know Taxi Taxi Driver isn't that King Comedy isn't that After Hours isn't that Last Temptation of Christ isn't that he made tons of movies that aren't quote-unquote Scorsese movies. Hugo. Um, I would say maybe, like, he maybe has made four. Like, yeah. he's made Goodfellas, Casino, The Departed, and uh, now Wolf of Wall Street. Um, and I find those movies to be, uh, and not just the movies that he made, but the movies that, uh, that imitate him, I find them to have, you know, a, greatly, a great variety of... Um, of successfulness, depending on how well uh, individual scenes work, um, which is to say that I don't like Casino very much at all because that movie is so much voiceover and none of the scenes ever breathe uh, to me. Right? They're just. It's I'm not just, crazy about Casino. I know a lot of people are, but I'm kind of eh on it overall. So yeah, that whole movie just feels like exposition. Mm-hmm. It feels like three over three hours of exposition. Um, because none of the scenes ever just play out on their right, own. Right. Um, whereas Goodfellas, you know, has a lot of scenes that play out on their own. Like you think of Goodfellas, you don't just think of crazy montages. You also think of the scene where uh, someone tries to make a pass at Karen, you know, and gropes her or whatever. When and and Henry Hill just beats the shit out of him 
pistol whipping him and then tells Karen to hide the gun. Like that whole scene's amazing. And that's its own scene. And Wolf of Wall Street kind of paradoxically, it gets all of its energy um, and all of its notoriety from being this kind of movie, this kind of casino Goodfellas movie. But I find all the scenes that I like in the movie are where it stops doing that. <laughs> um, and it just slows down a bit. Um, the, the aforementioned, uh, Popeye quaalude scene, um, just any scenes where him and Jonah, Jonah Hill, by the way, is amazing. Oh God. Uh, Jonah Hill and the rock, uh, were very narrowly beaten for best supporting actor for me by, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, this year, um, by miles page, but Jonah Hill's really, I don't think Jonah Hill's ever been funnier. Um, I don't think Scorsese has ever been funnier. Uh, and all the scenes where it just is allowed to breathe. There's a couple speeches that, uh, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio gets to give as Jordan Belfort, which are riveting. There I, are, I could watch him bang a microphone against his head for an hour. Those, all of those speeches. And they all, come in different, they all come at different parts in the movie and they mean different things to the character at the time. Mm-hmm. But all those speeches, which are basically – his amped up version of the of Glenn the, Gary Glenn Ross. Well, that, but I mean, I also more specifically the lunch scene with him and McConaughey at the beginning of the oh. movie. Oh yeah, all those scenes are amazing, and those scenes play out really long, and um, and that's all great. And honestly, there's a lot about this movie that I wish it wasn't based off a true story. You know, based off the novel by Jordan Belfort and made in collaboration with Jordan Belfort because or it wasn't a novel. Obviously, it was a memoir. But because all the parts of the movie I don't like are all the parts where it's just the mundanities of his life where it's like, oh, my God, look at the toll it's taking on his him and his marriage. But at no point do you ever view these people as human beings like they're just these crazy little monsters who just eat money. <laughs> and they just either they're, yeah they're just like fucking gremlins who eat money and drugs and uh, and all their interactions with women are you are a property to me because you are a status symbol i you know trading up mm-hmm. you know i'm going to get i'm going to trade in this this woman i'm married to for this sexier woman and i'm going to cheat on this sexier woman with this even sexier woman it's just all and here are all the different classes of hookers and like it's all just about using people and using women and stuff like that. So when there are long scenes where, you know, it's the marriage is falling apart and I'm taking the kids away from you and all that. Like I couldn't care less. I, I was – it was everything I could do not to check my watch, you know? Uh, I don't know if you're – like he's asking for you to be emotionally invested in, you know, the well, outcome of asking? the relationship. I think it's just more fodder for comedy. Like I think the moment where he's getting splashed with water and over to acting like a big baby, I think that's funny. I mean it's just, you know, well, I mean, la- that's, layer of comedy. Comedy me. is – you know, comedy is subjective. I found that mostly annoying. Oh. I didn't – I mean I, other people found it funny. You're not – obviously not alone, but I mostly found those scenes annoying. Um, So – I don't know. It's the highs of. It's not a movie that I think is perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but the highs of this movie are so high. And again, it's just it's amazing the energy Scorsese has, and it's so different from like there's a million movies that are fast that have faster editing, you know, or are more connect crazy camera work and all that, you know. But this movie, there's something about the way Scorsese do, does it, which is completely different. Um, you know, it's not as if this movie ever feels anything like detention. 
Egyptian, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or, 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 or Torque or, or a movie like that where it's just, you know, where the kineticism is all the point and everything. He, the way he is kinetic feels different. And I think that's maybe partially just because he uses, he uses real cameras or whatever. I don't know, <laughs> but it's, but it's, it's, it's a fascinating movie and it's really fun to watch. And it's just utterly hysterical. Um, and I, I had so much fun watching it. And like all Scorsese's long movies, other than maybe Casino for me, uh, the time just flies by uh, and wishing – and I, I can't wait to you know to watch this again and again. It's really just one of my favorite movies of the year because it, it's just so much fun. Um, and I understand – I understand people you know wanting more than really fun out of a like, – like I mentioned earlier, out of a Scorsese movie about you know Wall Street and – and and fraud and all that like it's it's a movie that I do wish was angrier and that I do wish ended more crazy um, because I do think the ending is kind of anticlimactic especially since it's the same ending we've seen sure. before uh, it's almost shocking like it's almost almost shockingly similar to uh, Goodfellas to Goodfellas it's yeah. like really like that much you're gonna shoot at this like everything about it other than. I guess Jordan, he slips the note or whatever, or he's like, don't, you know, but it's other than that, like the highs are high enough that I can forgive uh, the moments I wasn't so into. Uh, so Wolf of Wall Street, one of my favorite movies of the year. I'm getting nervous since we have an hour to go. Um, we need to, what do you play- mean we have an hour to go? Uh, well, I mean, we'll hit the three and a half hour mark and it'll be 11 o'clock, but, uh, you know, we can. You gonna turn back into a pumpkin? I am. I, I, I am. And then you can smash me. Well, if you're eager to hear more, including voicemails and emails from our listeners and fans, you might want to head on over to download part two of our best of the year episode. Uh, it went on quite long, so I decided to split into two parts, and you just heard part one. And part two gets even more crazier. So I hope you enjoy it. And uh, thanks for listening. 